Hey, what's up, everybody? It is Sunday, March 20th, 2022. Welcome to yet another episode of the Not Mind You podcast. I'm TJ. I'm Matt. And as always, before we even get into it, let's just get this out the way. There will be spoilers ahead. So as usual, Matt, what you got to say? I don't give a damn if you read it. I don't care if you read it. I read it. And as, here. and as usual, too, you know, as uh, the podcast gets uploaded, it's employed, it's published or whatever you want to call it. Uh, please check the timestamps on your respective platform. So on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts, really, you just have to click into the episode details, or I should say tap into the episode details to see them. With Apple Podcasts, you might have to scroll down. I think Spotify does a really good job actually just putting them on display. Um, with SoundCloud, I know on the mobile versions, it might be hard to spot, but they are there if you are able to somehow get to that episode's details. Um, and as usual, the timestamps are there. Pause whatever you need to pause, come back to it when you got the time, when you've caught up. And of course, as you always know, the podcasts are up in the cloud in perpetuity. So whenever you get to these episodes, you do what you got to do. Um, boy, we have a full roster today. Uh, in terms of manga, what we'll be covering, we got Hajime no Ippo, Sakamoto Days, Ayashiman, Kaiju Number 8, Jujutsu Kaisen, My Hero Academia, and Dragon Ball Super. In terms of the combat sports, we got UFC Fight Night Volkov versus Aspinall. And of course, we have our topic of the week, which this week, Matt, is going to be what? Which villain deserved better? Well, so without further ado, let's get into it, starting off with our combat sport manga, Hajime no Ippo. Matt, take it away. Goddamn right. It's chapter 1374, <laughs> Hajime no Ippo, uh, and this chapter is called I Realize Now. Um, like I've been saying for the last few weeks, we're still in the middle of the fight between Mashiba and Daniel Garcia. Mm -hmm. um, Mashiba uh, pretty much was able to land a counter right hand on Garcia and rock him, but he wasn't able to put him down yet. But his legs are starting to give out as we see in the beginning of the chapter. Right. Um, we also see like Mashiba's exhausted, pushing his body to like his absolute limit. And, you know, he's just throwing don't throw on those flicker jabs at uh, Daniel Garcia. And he just starts pursuing him with a combination to finish him off, which uh, pretty much is a left uppercut and a straight right hand. Yep. And he's just pursuing after him to the point the referee has to get in front of him. And he's just in a frenzy, just swinging, yep. swinging, 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 only to realize that Daniel is down. He's out. And um, the fight gets stopped. Mashiba was able to overcome Daniel Garcia um, and he's able to stop him uh, at the end of round seven. And immediately we see Ipo and Kumi hug each other. Mm -hmm. And Mashi was just kind of standing there, taking it all in. His coach jumps in, which is like, the first thing I was thinking was like, dude, where was you, where have you been this whole time? <laughs> yeah. but, okay. And um, then we kind of go into a little bit of a, of an internal monologue about Mashiba, well, within Mashiba, and he comes to the realization that uh, basically he has respect for Ipo. Yeah. Um, and then what I thought was interesting was very, right at the very end, you know, just the panel, but still I thought it was interesting. Um, they say the world, like finally we're gonna take on the world and Mashiba just says not yet. And they end the chapter like that. So, you know, he could be referring to something else. He could be referring to this, who knows? Um, but overall, I thought it was a good conclusion. 
you know, we got a lot of, of the dramatic action sort of in the last chapter. It's pretty much been a super dramatic fight yeah. overall. Um, yeah. And it was good to see that he came through. And like, as usual, man, like, Ipo is that the character that affects the entire universe. Like, yeah. dude, he fought Mashiba like three years ago. Like, it, even in their universe, it was like a while ago. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. there's still effects that that's having on him. Now, granted, he is pretty much in his life. You know what I'm saying? Being mm-hmm. his, you know, sister's uh, essentially her boyfriend without right. being a boyfriend. Um, right. So I don't know, man. Uh, overall, I thought it was a great chapter. I thought it was a great conclusion. I'm interested to see what this whole not yet thing was that he was referring to. Um, and I just want to see what's going to be the next fight up. Like, what's going to be the next thing to go down? Uh, what about you? How, how was you feeling about Hajime Noipo this week? I mean, I feel like this week, this is going to be my shortest review because there's not much to say. You know what I mean? It was, yeah. it was a, it was a short chapter too. It was a good conclusion to the, to the, to this battle. Um, I, I, I told this to Matt yesterday cause we, we saw Jujutsu Kaisen zero, um, as of the recording of this, this is like, this was Saturday, right? Yesterday. But, right. um, like the difference between Mashiba and Vegeta is Mashiba got a dub. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? As yeah, as hard so. as that is to hear, you know, I'm a Vegeta yeah. fan too. Like his character development has been ridiculous, but like Mashiba got some character development and he got a W. Um, but yeah, no, like going into my notes, like Garcia got slumped in the last chapter, but he didn't fall. Right. And he still had that determination in his eye. One thing that I really love, especially about this series and just Morikawa's art style is the way he draws determination in characters' eyes. It always looks like their eyes are illuminated, right? Like, like just like their eyes are glowing, you know? And he mm-hmm. took it even further with like Mashiba's eye looking like he has the Rinnegan, you know what I mean? <laughs> I was just like, you know, cause like the, the triple quadruple lines, whatever on Mashiba's eyes, like his determination slash insanity. Um, I just love the way Morikawa draws it, you know? Um, those x-ray details in the artwork uh, of the, the face, you know, you see a lot of like the cheekbones, the skull, uh, the jaw, as well as like the heart, the veins, arteries or whatever. It just took mm-hmm. it to the next level to just show how exhausted Mashiba was, you know, um, that last onslaught he did with those flickers and the uppercut and the straight, right? It's like on some, why won't you just die vibes? Man, um, for real. That's, that entry of the ref, was super cinematic, you know, like Mashiba was so enraged, like so incensed, so like in a manic state that it even made a loud thud, right? When the ref like had to restrain him, like, dang. Um, And, you know, Garcia had been down for a while uh, based on like the ref looking over, it's like homie was was done for a while. Even like in that sequence of panels, you see like at some point Garcia is just out of frame and unfortunately for him, he went down like Yamcha did to the Cyberman. That's neither here nor there. But the comparison is strong. Uh, that was a long round seven, man. I, I would have yeah, assumed man. like round were, seven like, was round like three chapters or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I did too. And then, you know, piggybacking off what you said, shout out to Mashiba's coach who's like finally making an appearance after not seeing him for like four chapters. Right. Um but no, going into that internal monologue, it's like the ex- this experience 100% humbled him and it just made him respect Ipo even more. If anything, it seems like he gets a little bit more of why Ipo retired and kind of is full circle for me because I remember at the beginning of this arc, it felt like, I think I, I remember talking about this either during one of our episodes or one of our convos, 
it felt like he refused to accept Ipo as Kumi's boyfriend because Ipo quit, right? He didn't think that Ipo retired. He felt like Ipo quit. And now he's like, I get it. And then he says, he's an incredible man. Um, the not yet at the end of the chapter, definitely ominous. Uh, I can't help but feel like it's going to go, well, I feel like the likelihood of it going like a Takamura route where he says something that just, you know, takes all the crowd away from his side, right? I don't think he's going to turn the crowd into an enemy. Um, I think if it goes comedic, it's probably going to somehow be a roast or a threat of Ipo or him threatening Ipo. Um, or he might just be stoic right now where he's like, we're not celebrating until we get that world title. Um, either way, I'm hyped for the next one, right? This was a very good arc. And just a reminder too, for people who are looking at Ipo and be like, man, there's like 1300 and some changed chapters. Each arc is somewhat episodic. Um, and as always, like you can go on like a Wikipedia, a uh, Wikia, which is like the Wikipedias they do for like specific series. Or you can like look at some clips online. There is an anime out there, but I know it's intimidating, but if you're into it, you can jump into it by art. You don't necessarily have to read it from the beginning, but if you're up for that challenge, it's worth it. Um, but yeah, this was a good art, good conclusion to the art. Our, our pre-conclusion, I guess the actual conclusion will be next chapter, right? Where we figure out what that not yet is all about. But that's what I thought about, man. Good work as always. All right, so with that, I will take us into Sakamoto days, right? So Sakamoto days were by Yuto Suzuki. This is going to be chapter 63 titled Survival. Um, as always, I like to kind of start off with the previous chapter's last panel. And last chapter, what did we get? We had that Usami, uh, the head test admin saying go, and basically all the participants doing that little ninja vanish, right? Uh, let's get into the summary. So this is the third and final stage of the entrance exam into the JCC. It has begun. Uh, we essentially get a glimpse of each team as they start setting up their strategies. We see that Shin immediately kind of sets his home with Sakamoto, <clears throat> excuse me, and he lets him know that he intends to do this on his own. Like, we're not going to team up. We're not going to buddy up. I got to show you my growth. Um, he even says, right, Mr. Sakamoto, we're opponents now, right? We then follow white team. And just a reminder, white team is going to be Shin Mafuyu, a.k.a. Young Face Mask, and the new, one of the new special recommendation candidates in Kaji, right? Which, side note, Kaji, uh, translate from the Japanese, means fire. So I'd imagine if he has any special abilities, probably going to be on the flame side of things, right? Um, so then we follow them, right, as they kind of catch their first tail. Uh, and I low-key thought that the tree branch uh, was going to send that one dude blasting off again like Team Rocket, but that's neither here nor there, right? Um, even Mafuyu can see how much Shin respects Sakamoto. And on the flip side, you can see that Mafuyu has really taken a liking to Shin, right? There's, yeah. a, lot less, there's a lot less bickering between the two of them uh, leading up into this chapter. It's like he's just following Shin's lead at this point, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we then cut over to Red Team, where a sad Sakamoto <laughs> is getting cheered up by Akira, aka Anxiety Youngster, right? While mm -hmm. Kill Baby is basically figuring out how to legally cheat. Uh, we then cut to Toromaru, who is a psycho killer, Keskese, you know what I mean? Like Toromaru, uh, <laughs> who is right. currently like hunting and thriving, living her best life and her truth. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, uh, she's, collecting, way she's collecting tails and limbs out here, 
right? And uh, proceeds to set white team and specifically it looks like she's aiming for Shin as her next target. Next scene, right? We're on Team Red, which is again, Sakamoto, Kill, Baby, and Akira, uh, who have established a base and are basically kind of eating their emotions. And by they, in this case, it's really Sakamoto. Akira is just trying to cheer him up. Um, we then see that Akira is more than just a god tier seamstress. She's got some high level reflexes to the point where it's like she's able to prevent a butterfly from getting its wings touched by kill baby so fast that the butterfly doesn't even notice that the butterfly has been moved. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but right. And you know, this kind of triggers Sakamoto's like, uh, kind of questioning slash investigation of her where he's like, yo, who taught you this? And why are you able to do all these things? But right before we figure out who her teacher was or like the origin of her current skill level, uh, here comes team Scarface glasses with a lie in a trap. Last panel, we see an explosion resulting from uh, Scarface glasses telling his teammates to fire because one of them has like, uh, well, for one, they shot a net at them. So they pinned him down for two. One of them has like some type of bazooka and uh, talking about that they're going to collect the tails uh, from Team Red's corpses, right? Let's right. get into the review. Uh, remember, we have our new special recommendation candidates who have entered this final stage of the entrance exam. Uh, Toromaru, the girl, right? Kaji, mm -hmm. the dude with the hat, and Shania, the dude with the gloves. Now, we haven't seen Shania in action as of this chapter. He was in the last chapter, but I just want to remind everyone that these are the three characters who we should probably pay attention to. Toromaru has already showed off her skills. We have yet to see Kaji and Shania. Um, at this point, like Scarface Glasses has made so many appearances, right? Like I feel like his uh, frequency of appearances has gone up, right? I can't help but wonder if we're going to get his actual name soon. Like we've been doing a, a decent job, I feel like giving these characters nicknames, um, but it's always kind of cool when we get their actual names. Like remember too, like uh, to, to kind of uh, supplement the fact that we've been seeing more of him, like last chapter when he explained what this actual catch the tail game means, like even head test admin Usami was like, hey, we got a smart one here. He recognized how insightful and how intelligent Scarface Glass was, right? Mm -hmm. um, as expected, we kind of predicted this last time too. Shin is going to take advantage of this stage to show his growth to Sakamoto, uh, but I did not expect Sakamoto to react like a mama bird, you know? Uh, yeah, man, I wasn't expecting that either. Which was kind of cool. I mean, it's not like we haven't seen the soft side of Sakamoto, but like he's got his whole family now, but it's 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 really cool how he has taken a liking or that much of a liking to Shin, where it's like he almost I I, I would venture to say considers him to be a son. Um, mm -hmm. That was a really dope sequence uh, of Shin going full Naruto, moving through those tree branches and snatching that dude's tail. Uh, and we still no words from Kaji. We don't we haven't heard Kaji or we haven't read Kaji speak. We haven't seen him use any skills. He's just been tagged along, stoic, silent type, right? Mm -hmm. uh, kill baby is just going to kill baby, you know? <laughs> right? Like, he's just going <laughs> to do his thing. I'm, I'm telling you, dude, he's just going to mess around, and he's going to win. And he's just going to be like, this universe is Mr. Satan, um, yeah. referring to Hercule, or like uh, Kang from One Punch Man. Toromaru, even though I said she was living her truth, living her best life, her truth is that she's a psychopath. Um, that panel where she, like, her axe shotgun is in the tree and she's using it as a post to, like, kind of squat over and, like, only one of her eyes is visible. Jeez. 
uh, I like chasing more than being chased. Like if I were in that, I, I think I would have just soiled myself. I'd be like, well, that's, <laughs> that's just a wrap on my life. Um, and, you know, she's playing for keeps. <laughs> like she's yeah. out here keeping limbs. I mean, to be fair, last chapter had uh, had admin Usami. What did he say? He said they could use their weapons however they want. But like, it seems contradictory to the whole, like, let's also try to keep the body count low in this stage. Right. It's like, right. And then you unleash these like monsters in these three candidates. And one of them is obviously unhinged with the Sakamoto keychain. It's like, I think the body count is just going to go up. Um, but whatever. At least, well, maybe not death, but, you know, some of these people are not going to be living the same. That's for sure. Um, that's 100 <laughs> percent. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, uh, looks like Shin is going to be next on her radar. And I can't help but wonder, is it going to be like Shin versus Toromaru, Mafuyu versus Toromaru? Kaji versus Toromaru is it going to be a two-on-one. Is it going to be a three-on-one? Nothing says it has to be a fair one. Um, yeah. So apparently, just switching subjects here, right? Apparently, if you're stranded on an island, Sakamoto is that dude you want to be stranded with. <laughs> he built a whole condo on this beach, right? Um, never a chapter goes by where you don't see Sakamoto's cheeks doing the most, right? At the beginning, when the ninja vanish, it's like getting yeah, hit by the wind, right? And then when he's eating, his cheek is just doing the most. Um, finally, uh, this is honestly what I want to see from Anxiety Yuxer. I want to see this from Akira. We saw that seamstress stuff. Now I see it's like, oh, wait, she actually has some reflexes. And the way they explain it, like her losing all confidence when she makes eye contact with somebody, that explains how lame she was during the, the plane stage, right? Um, right? During, I guess, that like uh, was... was uh, 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 What's, what's that one um, battle, the movie I'm talking about? Uh, we mentioned this last episode, or maybe it was offline. Battle Royale? Battle Royale, that Battle Royale stage yeah. in the plane. Um, man, that movie changed the game for me. Uh, but, yeah. Um, slightly annoyed how she never actually directly answers Sakamoto's question. She just goes and like, I lose all confidence. But it's like, girl, that's not what he asked. He said, who taught you? But it's neither mm-hmm. here nor there, I guess. That plot, you know, got to support the plot. Got to, got to keep the the anticipation going. And a little lightweight plot armor. Yeah, uh, of course, Kill Baby's gonna be the only one who falls for that trap because like Akira didn't move. Sakamoto was like, "Wait, Kill Baby was like, oh, I'm gonna just go." Like that dude is a liability, but he's gonna win because that's usually how it works out for those characters. I mean, if Mizuno slashing him in the throat didn't kill him. But it just like slightly inconvenienced him. Like, all right, he's he's gonna make Man, it. Yeah, he should have been dead. He's gonna make it, you know. Um, now, as far as that explosion is concerned, I think they're all right. I wouldn't be surprised if it was something like they burrowed deep into the sand. Um, also, that was a little bit overkill from Team Scarface Glasses, and I wouldn't be surprised if Scarface Glasses low key recognizes the threat that is Sakamoto. But like, goddamn, uh, that was a lot. What'd you think, man? Man, you know, um, like you, I want to piggyback off something you said. I wasn't expecting um, the mama bird reaction from Sakamoto, <laughs> yeah. like at all. That actually kind of really caught me by surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, I just didn't think that would be his reaction. Like, he was like, hey, let's go do this. He was like, nah, I'm doing my own thing. Sakamoto was like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And then was crying about it. Um, I'm just interested in seeing what the rest of the action is going to be. And I agree with you. I think Kill Baby will mess around, be the one that's going to pull it off in the end, right. which would be insane. Right. Um, 
And I feel like they're going to be able to get out of whatever this is that they're, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this net and the bazooka explosion and all of that. I think they'll be able to get out of that. So, well, not bazooka, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. The net and the explosion. I, I, well, I guess the guy, it kind of looked like the guy had a bazooka, right? We don't yeah. know for a fact. Yeah. Um, I mean, whatever it is, it shot and there was an explosion. So, <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, man. Uh, I, you know, I think you summed it up pretty good. And once again, like, was what was this? Chapter 63? And mm -hmm. it's been nonstop gas. There has, like, last chapter had some gas and it was more of a break. But once again, it's like the action has picked up. And not to say that there wasn't any action last chapter, but it's like, dude. Uh, this is nonstop, and I'm not mad at it. Keep going. Sakamoto all day. Uh, all day. With that being said, you want to take us into Ayashima? Yeah. So next up, we're on Ayashiman uh, chapter 16. So you can still, you know, just run through it. You can get caught up. Mm -hmm. um, where we finished off in the last chapter was Ten was fighting the, uh, the second in command behind Cotton. He just dropped like basically the most of the gang's motorcycles like right on top of him. And, um, you know, we just see him thinking about what's going on and, you know, how his fight went. And then we get a transition over to um, Morrow and Morrow is still in the middle of his fight with Cotton and he's having a conversation with uh, Urara. Mm -hmm. And we find out through their conversation that uh, the tattoo that was placed on his back as like a representative marker of her tribe and who he is and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's on his back, it's on her back, and I believe it's on Ten's back. And it allows them to telepathically communicate. But mm -hmm. what we learn, there's uh, another thing added to the power, which is um, the person Oh, what the fuck? Hold on one second. Mm -hmm. my, my notes like blanked out on me. Pretty much, I'll just, I'll post this out. Sorry. So we figure out that with them having a tattoo, it operates not only as like a walkie talkie, mm -hmm. but the other person on the telekinetic link feels what the other person is feeling. Right. And um, Rara was pretty much trying to recover a little bit from the damage that Morrow pretty much had been taken at the hands of Cotton. Yep. And I thought that was a really interesting twist because you almost never see that with those type of powers. You know what 100%. I'm saying? So yeah. I thought that was just super interesting. So she tries to give him some advice on what he can do because as we saw in the last chapter, he landed a strike, but, mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't able to do anything with it. And what she was trying to get him to do is she pretty much explains to Morrow that you need to get him wet to make him solid enough to hit Mm -hmm. And they try to convince him to run into essentially like this uh, dam, basically. And uh, Cotton is too smart. <laughs> yeah. um, as it appears, he tries to sidestep Cotton, believing that Cotton is going to go too fast and, and blast right through the wall. And pretty much uses his like, I guess this is his yokai form or what have you. He uses mm -hmm. that to make a bit of a parachute to stop himself from running into, you know, the water reservoir. And then right as he stops, we see Morrow right behind him, arm completely cocked back. And we just see him land a strike on the wall yeah. where all the water is. And the very next panel, all the water is coming out. And that is uh, where the chapter is, uh, ends. Very Pretty much, 
Yeah, very cinematic. I'm happy with it, honestly. Um, I thought that was I thought that was very interesting information, knowing that not only that they share this uh telepathic link, but that they, you know, they have to share the pain, you know, they bear the brunt of each other's uh pain, basically. And yeah. I also thought it was a, a interesting moment where during the time they're communicating, she's giving him advice. Marl was like, why do you even care? Like if we win, yeah, like I, I know we're, he kept it a buck. He was like, you know, I, I know you think that we're both just like, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, we're just a means to an end. So like, why are mm-hmm. you so involved in this? And, you know, she kind of sidesteps it and just kind of um, gives like what I felt to be partially a real answer, but not the real answer mm-hmm. saying like, well, regardless of all of that, y'all being a means to an end, like they're not going to listen to me. Right. You know, they have their own agenda about her and what they think she should or shouldn't be doing. So ultimately she needs them to win. So she won't be at the mercy of this game. But it also would mean that, you know, Merle and Tin would be safe. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like I said, all over, you know, these chapters, almost pretty much every chapter of this uh, manga so far has been fire. So. Yeah, you know it's only chapter sixteen. It's not too late. Just binge it now and get caught up. That's really how I feel. But yeah. go ahead, TJ. Did you have any thoughts, feelings? What? What? How was you feeling about Ayashiman this week? I liked it. Um, as I jokingly predicted with the last panel from uh, last chapter, Ten mm-hmm. does end up reverting to his old behavior once the battle is over. He is that trope. Uh, yep. Exceedingly competent, right? And it was funny too, like uh, shout out to Irara for uh, acknowledging that he's exceedingly competent, uh, competent right? Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, like he just immediately reverted back to his whole self, even like his his uh, his yokai form. He's just like, oh, I'm so nervous. Yeah. They're going to be so mad at me, you know? Right. Uh, but yeah, no, I have some questions about that telepathy too. So my question is mostly around, is it actually two ways or is it one way? Because I don't know if Mauro can initiate the communication. I think it's for right now, at least it seems to be only Arara who can initiate it right from the Mm -hmm. tattoo, the tattoo. So it could be that she's always in a situation where she ends up getting that feedback, that pain that whoever she's communicating to could feel. Um, But if it's two ways, that would be uh, slightly different, right? In the sense that, oh, now if Arara gets hurt, Mauro could potentially feel it. And who knows how that could play out later on. I appreciated, like you said, how Morrow kept it real. Um, the way Morrow taunted uh, Cotton and how surprisingly effective oh it was yeah, it's made me laugh brow. really hard. Uh, it reminded me of how PyCon was, had to taunt uh, Fat Janenba in movie 12, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's like, why was that so effective? But that's neither here nor there. Um, that parachute is going to look dope when it's animated. I think cotton in general is probably going to do look dope when it's animated. Now, I don't know what the numbers are, like how, how it's doing in terms of popularity, because it's still somewhat in its infancy. Um, but as usual, right, if an, uh, a manga does well enough, it usually gets an anime. And if Ayashiman does, does get that anime, like this is going to look good. Um, that Superman punch into the fountain wall, that's model coming in clutch, right? Yeah, you could have expected it to be a moment of despair, but he was like, uh, I'm gonna break this anyway. Um, and then the last thing I'm gonna leave us with in terms of my thoughts was Cotton still has not pulled out his mask. Yeah, if, if we if we really think about it. so there might be another level to this, although you know, him getting wet 
it's probably going to be a problem for him. If he got him. But, yeah, exactly. If they got him there, they got him there. But I think it's interesting to note that he has not actually pulled out his mask yet. But, yeah, no, good chapter. Get in on Nayashiman. Get in on it. That's all. It's not too late. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to transfer over right over. We're going to go into uh, Kaiju number eight. Number eight? Uh, Kaiju number eight. Number eight? No, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. Being Kaiju a high man over here. <laughs> we uh we on chapter 58 of Kaiju number eight. And yep. um this chapter is called How to Overcome the Worst Case Scenario. Mm. Um I thought this was this there was I'm just gonna be honest, there was no action in this chapter, but the we drew a lot of really good conclusions. Mm-hmm. Um pretty much we're in the middle of General Hoshina. Um, well, Vice Commander Oshina explaining pretty much what he learned from Kaiju 10, as well as, you know, a little bit more information. So he's pretty much explaining to him that um, the the Kaiju are damn near have created a factory for themselves um, where they are continuing to produce Kaiju and that there's an area that most of them are held up in that mankind cannot access just due to water pressure and gravity and all of that because yep. it's very close to pretty much like the bottom of the ocean, right? Yep. Um, and, you know, we, we're seeing the reactions of some of these other characters and just getting a bit more of a peek into their personalities, um, the other generals and commanders and such that we saw from uh, other sections. You know, everybody pretty much has been you know they're all uptight about this because this is something that you know they they you know no one's really prepared for this necessarily so this is their preparation you know right getting the information and then knowing knowing what to do with it and um you know Hoshina even describes and I believe this was Hoshina it could have been one of the people he was meeting with but Hoshina pretty much um he pretty much just comes in there and drops those bombs, man. And nobody yeah. really wants to hear it yeah. um, because it's not good news. And, you know, these Kaiju are producing Kaiju that are more and more resilient. So it's not only that they're going to continue to make them, they're going to continue to be tougher. Yeah. Um, but what I did like is that it came not necessarily to a conclusion, but close to a conclusion to a point where we have like, a plan that's somewhat being set in motion where they were talking about, you know, how they were working with the youth division and, you know, really working those guys up and that there might've been a person that would be suitable to use a weapon they developed from Kaiju number six. Mm -hmm. And it's a person that I'm not even going to hold you. I kind of forgot about just in the mix of everything going on. Uh, And it was uh, Leno. It's his friend, Leno Ichikawa. Mm -hmm. Um, He's one of the people that was part of the youth group that's had a lot of uh, rapid growth. And we get uh, a peek at him pretty much soloing a monster after it looks like his team is like having a hard time with him. Um, Again, it's just a panel. We don't know for a fact if he like finished him off, but that's the feeling that's given, uh, uh, I would say, in the moment. And uh, that's pretty much where we leave off. So. We're going to see where Leno's going to be able to fit into this story, basically being this person that's compatible uh, to this weapon that no one else is compatible with, you know? Yeah. Um, I thought 
it, it was kind of giving me, and obviously, I mean, it, it plays off a lot of these different tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of giving me Pacific Rim vibes a little bit. Hey, bro, the, the chasm? I mean, that's straight out of... Yeah, yeah. Though, as I was reading it, I was just like, "This is Pacific Rim." Yeah, <laughs> like, that's the, I've, I don't uh, think it's the first time we've made this comparison either. Yeah, I don't. It probably it definitely, even if we haven't said it on the show, we had to have at least said that at least once before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's pretty much my thoughts on it. I didn't have much to say on it. You know, I mean, I think I pretty much summed it up. Uh, what did What did you think? All right. Well, uh, first and foremost, I think my question from the last chapter we reviewed still stands. Like. How far is Hoshina into that deal with Kaiju 10? <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And then kind of going into it, I think with the Kaiju that Nine makes, I don't think they can, like Nine can reproduce so much as just make the Kaiju. And I don't know if the Kaiju themselves can make other Kaiju, but either way, it's a problem. No, um, they can. That's what he, that's what he was saying. Cause really? 10 has made other Kaiju. No, I don't, 10 hasn't made other Kaiju. I didn't. I didn't get that from uh, from the previous chapters, right? I th- it felt like like ten could um, could control other kaiju, but I don't. I don't, I don't recall uh, reading that he could make other kaiju. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's just in my. I could have. I could have read it wrong too. Um, but but uh, it was cool seeing in this chapter that basically, even though uh, what Hoshina is saying might be theoretical or what, you know, Ten is saying to Hoshina and Hoshina's relating to the conference might be theoretical, but the data backs it up uh, from the increase in frequency to the kaiju, of the Kaiju emergences, the surge mm-hmm. of the new breeds, and the fact that the average fortitude just seems to be increasing like at a greater rate. Um, I, I think, well, I wanna say like, I like that they highlight that the actual mechanisms behind Kaiju emergences are still like up in the air. Right, no one's really sure how they come on. This is the part where it looks like Pacific Rim, right? Only that um, they're coming out of this chasm, and it looks like the natural like energies that get produced by the fault lines in the earth, um, the underground substances, the nearby flora and fauna, all that mixing together produces kaiju. Which made me think, and this is like kind of like a on some like climate change stuff or whatever. But it's like you know, could the kaiju just be Earth's immune system? Right, like, <laughs> are kaiju the enemy or is it humans? I'm, I'm just, I even put in my nose like, nah, nah, nah. You know, like LMAO. You know, it's like, nah. But, yeah, nah, but it'd be, insane. it'd be an interesting take. Like, it's like, turns out humanity was, was the, the enemy the whole time. Just so happens, huh? <laughs> right? Um, uh, turns out nine is actually the hero in this, and Damn. Uh, kaiju number eight is like just a betrayer, like, like traitor to all Damn. the <laughs> <laughs> He's so messed up, right? <laughs> Uh, but um, you know, going back to what we both talked about, right? The the Japanese anti kaiju defense forces on borrowed time. Uh, yeah. Also, nine is like Cell from Dragon Ball, but low key worse, right? Um, Cell okay. gets the abilities of the people he's built on, right? Their genetic material, but he doesn't. He can't necessarily access their memories, right? right. Um, uh, nine can apparently access the memories of the people it assimilates. That's a problem, right? So it seems like their only hope of victory lies in whatever they're able to keep Director General Izao, like uh, Kikoru's dad, in the dark from, right? Um, But it also made me think, like, how is Kaiju number nine able to specifically target uh, the Director General before? Because it's like, 
he like that whole battle uh was almost like a distraction while he made his way to the base like he knew where uh i guess kaiju number two's remains were and like specifically to target that general which was like i don't know um but it made me think too it's like it what has he been posing as a member of one of the divisions this whole time uh i mean nine does have the ability to clone slash split itself so i don't think it's out of the realm of possibility you know um i think it's interesting that they mentioned the young towns but they didn't mention kafka and kokoru excuse me but i guess it falls in line with the whole you know the director general not knowing or nine not knowing about their existence although nine has had interactions with uh leno ichikawa but that's neither here nor there but uh Shout out to Leno going to get that that huge blow up, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he's about to get paired with Kaiju number six, who, if I recall correctly, I didn't I didn't go back to previous chapters to back this up, but I think that's the kaiju that killed Kikoru's mom. Um, I could be wrong, or maybe that was the one she was she uh she had her special suit designed from, but I think that's the one that killed her mom. Um times are desperate too because. If we think about it, it's kind of monumental. Um, other than Kikoru, who's a prodigy, Reno might be the only rookie, the second rookie, to get a custom weapon. But it's even more monumental because he might actually be the first rookie to get paired up with an actual kaiju, right? Like, I don't think Kikoru's rep- weapon was a, a specific identified kaiju. I could be wrong, but I think Leno might be the first actual rookie Mm-hmm. to get like a kaiju based weapon like paired up with a kaiju so this could be like incredibly monumental slash unprecedented but it makes us realize too like this is how desperate the times are um i think next it would make sense to get like some type of time skip or a training arc right um i don't know is Jujutsu Ka- uh, Jujutsu guys, Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> I did this in post. I did this in post. No, here. Uh kaiju number 8 has not had a bad chapter yet. This was good. I got no other thoughts, man. Well, um, you could go ahead if you would like to, sir. Oh, just, transition. Just piggyback off my Freudian slip just now. That's uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> all good. <laughs> like, transition all right, over into that highlight reel. Let's get into Jujutsu Kaisen, AKA, uh, I'm always borrow this from Matt, but uh, Yuda's and one mixtape. Uh, shout out to both of us too, because we saw Jujutsu Kaisen Zero last night, and uh, expect a review on that. I'm not going to say anything else, but expect a review on that uh, coming soon. And also, uh, shout out to anyone who's like checked out our uh, review of the Batman. Uh, it did well. It's been doing well at this stage on YouTube and on uh, on uh, the podcast platform. Thank so you, man. For real, appreciate we y'all appreciate for checking it. that out. Uh, expect the Jujutsu Kaisen Zero one to come soon. Now, Jujutsu Kaisen by Gege Akutami, right? Chapter number 178, title, Tokyo Sendai Colony, part five. As always, what was the last panel last time? Come, Rika, give me everything. With the engagement mm-hmm. ring straight up glowing. Uh, we knew what this was. We knew what this was. Listen, yeah. Rika has entered the chat on some Alfred, will you be needing your explosive battering, sir, energy? Man, uh, for real. Like I mean, like, listen, um, Ishigori- Dude, Ishigori and Udo immediately notice an increase in Yuda's curse energy. Like, it's exponentially increasing. Um, Yuda Mm -hmm. equips some cursed armor for his right arm and gets uh, Rika to go to work on Udo, right? Uh, Well, him and Rika kind of go to work on Udo. 
while the five minute timer has started. Because if he fully manifests Rika, like he hits her with the come now, give me everything, and he's using the ring, not a cursed weapon to kind of you know transfer her energy to, he's got a five limit timer for him to be able to fully utilize her power. Um, meanwhile, right, while while this is all going down. Yuda employs, so he sends Rika after Udo, Takako the floater, right? Yuda employs the Inumaki curse technique, which Udo tries to block by covering her ears, but it's no use. She then gets pieced up by a full power Yuda and Rika. They were not shooting the fair one on that. Um, Ishigori fires a granite blast and then gets to witness firsthand how strong Rika is. Side note, uh, Ishigori's no slouch either, right? Like, Rika said that hurt when she deflected his blast, which I don't think we've ever seen her in all of her appearances in the manga, not counting like the fact that, you know, they were traveling at some point. I don't think we've ever seen her say that hurt. Um, and to Ishigori's credit, he sends her reeling back into a building. Uh, so he's no slouch. That dude's got some power to him. Uh, Yuna, in the meantime, is setting up some Shikigami to trap Udo, who realizes it too late and suffer some damage, like when she gets sliced up uh, by what appeared to be the crushed, right, uh, Shikigami that uh, that Yuda sent after her using his hair. Um, we also end up finding out a little bit more of her background, uh, mostly that the reason why she died initially was because she was taking the fall for someone else, right? We learned that part of Okotsu's curse technique is copy, which also explains why he can use the Inumaki clan's curse speech, right? Uh, the last panel is essentially this triple domain expansion uh, by uh, Udo, Ishigori, and Yuda. This, that, this chapter was a banger. Next chapter is going to be wild. That's all I got to say there. Into my review. Uh, first things first, five parts into Sendai, and it didn't hit me that Yuda was from Sendai until I watched the movie yesterday. I was like, wait a minute. And I've read Jujutsu Kaisen Zero. <laughs> I was like, oh, it only clicked just now that you know he's from Sendai. Now, also, my prediction from when we reviewed uh, chapter 177 was wrong. I thought this chapter, Yuda was going to dispatch them both, and they wouldn't make an appearance in 178. But uh, my, that, that appears to not be the case. Now, uh, I want to say that I got Toji vibes, Zane Toji, uh, when Rika opened herself up to reveal that she can also store cursed tools uh, like a Shikigami, but she's not really a Shikigami. Uh, and I think this chapter kind of explains why Rika still exists, uh, even though we saw Rika get exorcised. And this is not a spoiler for the movie. I mean, if you read the chapters, you should be aware of this. But uh, Rika essentially gets exorcised uh, when Yuta breaks the curse, right? But Rika's still here. So I think the way... I processed it, and I could be very wrong, is that there's Rika the spirit, uh, Rika Orimoto, and there's Rika the curse, right? Uh, so it's like during the events of Zero, Rika the spirit, Rika Orimoto passed away, got exercised, but Rika the curse is still very much a part of Utah and is actually his curse technique. Um, so as a result, right, Rika is basically now an external battery for Yuta, right? He's got curse technique uses, uh, Rika's complete manifestation and curse energy supply, which are now all possible. But as we see, right, there's that five minute time limit. So he's got to wreck his opponents in that time frame. Uh, this is all triggered by him putting on the engagement ring. Now, 
Also, uh, that armor, that cursed armor or whatever, gauntlet, whatever you want to call it, that she equips Yudo with on his right arm is pretty cool. I thought it had a really cool design to it. Um, it's interesting that uh, Udo Takako kind of grabs the air to get her balance back when Yuta jumps at her. So it's like she always has a handle, right? It'd be interesting too. It's like, is she really floating? Like, is she actually flying or is it just like, it's not just her hands, but like any part of her body that comes in contact with the air can treat the air like a surface, right? Um, her power is actually like very, very cool. Um, I want to say too that I couldn't help but notice that Yuda's ability to use cursed speech has gone up a ton. Before he had to use like a cursed uh, speaker, right? Like a cursed megaphone. And now he's just able to do it directly with his own voice. Um, he's definitely overpowered. They definitely did not shoot the fair one. Uh, it was... <laughs> Yuda and Rika versus Takako, and that was just like a one-sided beatdown, especially when he hit her with the don't move off the curse speech, and she just had to take that. Um, it seems like Rika and Yuda barely have to exchange words because they're so in sync. Like, at some point, he's just like, Rika, and she's like, ready, right? And then, to Rika's credit, she's fully manifested and still very independent. Like, it didn't seem like Yuda ordered her to go after Ishigori after he went uh, for Takako, but she went and handled him after deflecting that granite blast. And again, we have to highlight Ishigori punching Rika back and sending her into a building. Like, that dude is strong. He's kind of OP, too. Um, interesting that we got a little bit more background on Takako, right? It turns out that the only reason that she has the name Takako because the assassin clan that she's a part of, they are nameless. They're just purely devoted to the mission. They don't get names. But the reason why she got a name is because she had to take the fall for someone who murdered another member of the clan. And the, the penalty for that is death. So that's how she died. We learn how she died, right? And I can't help but wonder if it's directly related to why she hates the Fujiwaras and their descendant, which appears to be uh, Yuda in this case. I still am not really sure what happened with those hair shikigami that Yuta was able to create. Um, it looks like they were just a trap that activates regardless of whether or not they're intact. And it looks like it was um, mimicking Lakdwala's ability, right? Um, so basically what we're saying is Yuta is Kakashi, the copy ninja, in this case, the copy sorcerer. Uh, he hit her thin icebreaker so hard. And by he, I mean Yuta, and by her, I mean Takako, Parts of the armor on his arm got blown off. And I like that when Takako balls up her fist, the air around her gets wrinkled and balled up too. Again, triple domain expansion. Uh, it made me think, if we recall correctly, a domain can be broken if a stronger sorcerer opens up a domain inside of it. Uh, that's one of the first things we saw like with Gojo versus Jogo, uh, the volcano dude. Gojo broke his domain. Um, I have a feeling that a fully charged Yuta with a five-minute time limit will just destroy both of their domains. And by there, I mean Ishigori and Takako's. Uh, I don't think there's going to be a Sendai Colony Part 7 with both Takako and Ishigori. There's obviously going to be a Part 6, but Part 7 won't be the same. Uh, that's what I thought. What do you think, Matt? Um, what else can we really say at this point about Yuta? 
You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. As far as how he's been going off in the chapters, um, especially when we get that introduction, not really introduction, but we kind of see, and this might be partially, uh, you know, recency bias with seeing the movie. Right. Um, but just seeing them in action at the same time, it kind of, because it was a bit of a three-way fight, but Yuta was kind of catching the worst of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we were able to get some really good action. Um, I thought it was interesting, her up in the, the you know, the the weapon power, like, you, it, would you like one of these, sir? Like, yeah. the baseball tonight, huh, sir? Like, which one you want <laughs> right. to go with? Um, but I liked that it was a mimicry of multiple things. Because, like, was that that, like, Benny Maru guy's arm? The oh. arm that uh, that he pulls out that sleeve that we see on Yuta? Is that, like, you know, the one, the robo guy? Was that, like, oh, his arm? Oh, Mekamaru? Mekamaru. What did I call him? Benny Maru? Benny Maru. Shout out. Yeah. Shout out, Fire Force. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he's like uh, more like the Mecha Maru uh, arm. At least that was what it looked like to me, but they didn't specify. Huh. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I like that he did the curse speech and all of that. And it gave me those feelings of uh, Fushigoro's dad, you know, yeah. how he has the the one curse that carries all his tools in it, too. Um, yeah. You also just really, really see how OP Yuta is, man. Yeah. Um, as he's able to like super turn the tide, and then that the triple domain expansion at the same time, it's unprecedented, bro. We've never even seen nothing like that in the series. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, I don't know, man. It's it's gonna be fun to to see what happens in the next chapter. Right now, it's of the manga that we cover and just of the manga that I'm reading. It's probably the thing I'm the most excited to read, like on a weekly basis. To be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um especially just, like I said, they've been doing Yuta a lot of justice. So, mm -hmm. you know, I want to see what's going to happen once we get to the conclusion of this fight and what's going to happen with a triple domain expansion because, you know, is it, it does the strongest domain. I don't think that we've ever necessarily discussed, discussed this. I know we haven't discussed it on the show, but have they, it, man, maybe it's been a while because, you know, Jujutsu Kaisen's like, you know, deep now. Yeah. We're like, close to 200 chapters in but like have they explained what happens in that scenario i don't think so i think the only thing we've gotten is like when it's uh one versus one the stronger one usually can break the weaker one um but i don't think they've really explained what's gonna also, happen in a triple situation but yeah. also yuda with the domain expansion yeah 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 let's see so 100%. I don't know, man. It, it's gonna be crazy, man. I'm just, I'm excited for it. Yeah. It's, it's the thing I'm the most excited to read every week. Yeah. Um, did you wanna, uh, you wanna take us over into <laughs> my hero? Before we go into my hero, I will say too that I also got Toji vibes uh, when Rika opened herself up because I didn't know she could also store tools. Um, yeah. That was pretty. That was a pretty cool detail. Um, she's just out here, just and the fact that she's the one who put the armor on him too. It's like. Total like butler, like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It was cool. It was cool. But yeah, let's go into My Hero Academia by Kohei Horikoshi. This is chapter 348. Uh, mm -hmm. And the title was not Inflation. Oh my goodness, I did not update my notes. Uh, oh. Let's you know that I, your boy copy paste a little bit, you know, every now and then, you know what I'm saying? But let me get that chapter title for you all. It's unrequited. Right now. Bro, let me do my thing. <laughs> hey, I'm trying to help you out, trying to help me, man. You're making me look bad. Now they're going to be like, oh, man, TJ's bringing the podcast out. I was like, man, you got to get your own podcast. Well, you don't need TJ. All because 
you had to. No, I'm joking. All right. right. All because I just had to step out of my body. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, but the chapter is called Unrequited. Thank you, Matt. Um, previous chapters last panel, for you to be my boyfriend, Toga proclaims looking all cute while wielding a blade, while Aravity and Deku watch as they realize she hurts people out of pure and genuine affection. Psycho killer. Anyway, uh, I mean, this picks up right from that. In the middle of all these crashing waves that seem to be generated by that floating Nomu, right? Mm -hmm. Deku and Naraka uh, have to find a way to shut Toga down long enough so he can break free and get to the Shigaraki zone, which is like 100, 200 kilometers away. We don't really get anything new in terms of the exposition, but it was more of a way for like Uraraka and Deku to know what we as readers already knew. Because we've already seen a lot of these flashbacks, a lot of the emotions he's experienced, like how she works mentally, so on and so forth. Um, however, because of the way Deku reacted to her memories, Toka's, uh, to Toka. Toga's over him now. Uh, all this, of course, is happening while Toga is continuously attacking which is a problem due to Deku's danger sense not picking it up. Finally, mm -hmm. we see Froppy come, come through, right, with a drop kick and buys Deku enough time to separate himself and start to get out of there, right? The last panel is Deku going full speed to make it 200 kilometers back to the Shigaraki zone, but he's not, like, really out of the woods yet, right? Uh, he still appears to be within Toga's range, just to say the least. And Uraraka and Froppy are, like, trying to take over, but who's to say? In my review, um, this had to be the most hilarious intro to a My Hero chapter of all time. Deku <laughs> is such a nerd. Even the narrator's like, he's a damn nerd. Uh, this was on like the same misdirection level as you, Matt, when you closed out episode nine, I think, right? <laughs> you hit us with that misdirection. I thought he was going to say something deep. Oh, Billy a bitch. That was hilarious. Um, but it was like it was on fresh. the same energy, same energy that like in this chapter, because like, it starts off with him talking about, uh, or with the narrator talking about how, you know, one for all has been passed down to Deku. It's the most coveted quirk by all for one. To then switch over to saying like, with all his traps, the dude's still just a damn nerd. I was like, mm -hmm. yo, how are you gonna roast your, your protagonist this way? Um, homegirl Toga got over that crush real quick. Uh, <laughs> once you realize how lame Izuku was, uh, <laughs> no. But right. in all seriousness, in all seriousness, uh, if she has tasted someone's blood, it appears that she can transmit her thoughts into them, right? So far, it seems like that's been one way. Toga to the other person whose blood she's, like, sampled, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Can it be two-way? Is it possible that Uraraka and Deku could perhaps, you know, transfer their thoughts to her? Um, how do those tentacles in her suit work, right? They're obviously... They obviously have like some type of built-in propulsion, right? Because they're able to levitate and travel, right? But it seems like she's controlling them with her mind. I'm guessing that's like from the, the glow up or slash upgrade the Metal Liberation Army and Redestro's, well, basically Redestro's group had given her. Because um, they were like Redestro's group, the Metal Liberation Army, they were kind of, they had that front where they were building all these tools, but it doesn't surprise me that they also built that tool specifically for yoga's, uh, yoga, Toga's power. Why am I stumbling on her name so hard this episode? But um, shout out to Floppy for getting things back on track. Uh, Toga's story is kind of sad. And at the end of the day, she's just really seeking acceptance. However weird her habits are, I don't think 
this world or society are, are ready to accept her type of love, uh, there's always somebody out there. You know, every pot does find a lid. Um, but Oh, man, I never heard that one before. Okay. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, there seems to be this common theme amongst this specific group of villains where it's like they're just shunned by society and it spirals on down from there, right? Um, that one Nomu that's floating above the battle when are they going to handle that? Now, obviously, Gang Orca and crew are handling that in the background, um, but it's been constantly, like, like launching its limbs, causing all these waves attacking everybody throughout the whole thing. And then we also have, like, the Tooth Homie, uh, who's out there doing what he does. Um, but Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I feel like, especially for this Nomu, this is a situation where Ochaku's quirk, which is like, you know, controlling gravity and the ability to essentially fly, right, by controlling her own gravity, would be super useful. But I guess in terms of the priority, Toga is probably the bigger problem. Um, I don't think Toga's going to let him get away that easily. I don't think so. Um, mm -hmm. And then I also had a few questions surrounding this battle, but I'll, I'll start with this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Deku should be able to use float. He's used it before. Why not mm -hmm. just fly? Um, although running on water is pretty cool. And then it made me think like, like low key record scratch freeze in my head. They're not on the beach. They've been fighting on the surface of the water. I don't think it's that shallow. Um, like this whole time. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like did Ochako have a hand in that? Cause if she touches people or objects, she can make them float too. Um, but then how the hell is Himiko doing so well in this environment? Cause she like, it's not like as much exposition as there was in the chapter, there was also a lot of action and she's like navigating these waves. No problem. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, man, it made me think, uh, the zones. Well, for one, uh, is she low key using Ochako's quirk? And also it made me think like these zones were designed specifically to hamper a specific villain's quirk. Up to as up to as much as they knew about that specific villain. So it's like I don't think they know about Ochako's upgraded quirk yet, right? Mm -hmm. But these zones were designed. So it's like, why is she able to handle this water so effectively when it should be slowing her down? Like, is she already low-key using Ochako's quirk? Um, yeah, I don't think the the water is as shallow as it may seem. But now this is a good chapter. Like, we're in it now, we're in the action, we're getting progression. Um, I'm excited to the next. I'm excited for the next chapter, man. What did you think, Matt? Um, I had the feeling that I thought they were kind of still on the beach, maybe just on the part where the water was more shallow. But I could have been wrong, um, just because there's there's a lot of action taking place. Right. Um, I thought the whole because he's still a damn nerd that was that was perfect. That was perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. I thought it was hilarious. Um, yeah, I'm. More than anything else, I think my biggest thing was the the biggest thing I came away with was how long will it take him to get there? Yeah. If he can get there, how long is that going to take him? Yeah. Now, as far as her like suit being like upgraded, they definitely upgraded it because beforehand, those kind of uh, those things that are flown off her suit, those used to be syringes. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't necessarily look like that anymore. So. Yeah, I'm curious to see how that works because you know her her costume was way more active mm -hmm. um, this time than it had been. Loki on and, some like Doctor Octopus, uh, yeah, vibes, man. But yeah, like a sharp, you know, like a sharp ass, freaky ass Doctor Octopus. 
emphasis on freaky. Right, for real. Um, and you know, like the kind of return of Fropy and stuff. So I think I thought it was a good chapter. I feel like we're about to start getting like a little bit more like fan service. Like I think they're gonna start giving us some of what we've been looking for. And mm-hmm. I I also believe that we're gonna cut away. Mm-hmm. I think they're gonna take us somewhere else and take us to another battle or something else that's taking place because you know, he shouldn't, or he's going to get caught on the way over there and get stuck in another battle. Or like Um, his bleeding heart self is just going to want to help. You know, like if he sees a battle going on, I was like, how can I help out Deku? I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. But that's how I, that's to me, that's how I see, uh, that's how I see it coming. That's how I see the the next, you know, kind of chapter going overall though. Like you said, we're in the middle of the action and I was happy with it. Um, yeah. You know, this is what we have been waiting on for like yeah. the last few weeks. So, yep. you know, young, I have no complaints. We're getting the action that I was looking for. Oh, huh. you want to talk action? You want to take us into the next series? Oh, man. Oh, man. So speaking, we go action. to Dragon Ball Super. Uh, which we have not covered in a month because it only drops monthly. Um, we're on Dragon Ball Super Chapter 82, Bardock versus Gas. Mm. Um, so what we see is Goku is continuously spamming instant transmission with Gas. And, um, you know, he's on one planet, they're fighting, teleport again, another planet, teleport again, another planet, teleport again, another planet. And he keeps saying, you can't escape me. But Goku keeps, as he continues to chase Goku, he keeps popping up in a more disadvantageous situation than he did the last time. Oh, my goodness. Um, And it's clearly starting to, like, really piss him off. (laughs) Also, um, they and they teleport to this one planet, you know, where this one guy is, like, working. And it looks like the dude that they were trying to save was... uh, Yep, Monaka. Yeah, Monaka. There it is. Yep. Like I was like, is this Monaka? It is him. <laughs> it is him. Uh, so I thought that that was cool. And you know, he keeps teleporting him to different places, and ultimately he teleports him to um, uh, not the. It wasn't the prison. He teleports him to like a bath, and we see that Alec and the other, two, you know, his other two underlings. They're all like, man, what are we going to do? You know, gas is gone. He's like, oh, you know, shouldn't be too worried about gas. Um, eventually, you know, he'll get a chance to come back. And they're like, hey, should we unleash our inner natures too? Which also confirmed what you were saying that they all can do this kind of release the inner nature thing yep. by taking off the necklace. Yep. Um, and he told them something very smart. He was like, no, y'all cannot go beat that saying. Uh, so, you know, some kind of respect gets put on Vegeta real quick. Um, and eventually we, you know, we cut back to, uh, Goku and gas and Goku pretty much takes gas to a prison and finds out that he's pretty infamous there. Um, you know, the people pretty much know who he is and, you know, Goku tries his, his Goku thing. And he's like, Hey man, you know, you don't got to do this. You know what I'm saying? Like, not necessarily, he doesn't necessarily try to talk him out of like, fighting but Goku kind of tries to Goku his thing into the fight like so do you just do whatever it is like you know motherfuckers tell you to do and it's not it's not talk no jutsu it's like Goku's really just stating facts like hey you're stronger than this dude why are you listening to him yeah yeah I was trying to figure out how to word it yeah thank you like um 
See, now everybody gonna think that you don't need me now. See there? Now, <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, no, but he just was like trying to like break it down for him. And he was like, my own brother almost killed me a while back. And it's just like, bro, that was so long ago. <laughs> it was, though. Like even in the like microcosm of a world, like that's, that's, it's almost irrelevant now that happened so long ago. <laughs> Especially still, considering you still have fresh for him. him. Like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> still fresh for him. I mean, because he's talking about his brother almost killed him, and he did still die in that situation. Right. You know what I'm saying? He did ultimately still get yeah. killed. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. Um, and so he brings up how, you know, he's like, dude, like, my brother tried to kill me, so it's all straight. Like, you know, you ain't got to listen to him just because he's your brother. You know, it's, you know, it's right. whatever. Right. And, um, you know, so obviously he sees that that won't go anywhere, but he does kind of throw that seed down. And he's like, are you sure you can trust him? Yeah. And, um, you know, so then we cut back and, you know, we get, we, they're pretty much jumping back and forth between Alec and Gas and uh, his family and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then we see more of Goku and Gas fighting, more teleporting, more Gas, more Goku and Gas fighting, more teleporting until, uh, as you called it, he takes them to... Uh, Weiss. Mm-hmm. And he pretty much drops gas off where Weiss is and is like, you know, hopefully this is, you know, you'll be able to deal with this. But what I thought was funny was like Goku didn't instant transmission directly back. He had to go basically backwards. So he went to like all Retrace the places steps. they yeah. had gone yeah. to ultimately get back to where he was. Um, and they come to the realization that you know they got a little bit of time now and they need to get away from gas and gas is going to get there in like 20 minutes and then there was also like this cool moment where we realized that like um granola's eye patch is like kind of a robot yeah um you know gets a car comes to scoop them up and uh you know they find they end up finding a scouter um after they kind of pull a temporary escape Mm-hmm. The the Namekian that they've been teaming up with, he find he gives them a, a Bardock's old scouter. Yep. He gives it to Goku, does not know anything to do with it. And mm-hmm. Vegeta takes it away from him and is like, yo, like, let me check this out. And he's able to get the audio going. And mm-hmm. we're pretty much able to hear an audio log of a fight. And we get a chance to see a little bit of the fight between uh, Bardock and Gas. Yes, sir. Um, and... You know, we don't get necessarily conclusion either, but we see that gas has pretty much always been strong. And at this point, gas is still small. They say this is uh, 40 years pretty much in the past. Mm-hmm. So um, I also thought it was funny, and this might have just been me, that gas had like the the little H emblem on the front of his jacket. And that to yeah, me looked the like the... Huh? The heaters logo. Oh, for the heaters. Yeah, the heaters logo looks a lot like that pin... Uh, that Gohan and Videl both had from their school. Yeah, maybe yeah. it's just me. Orange star. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just it just reminded me of that. Um, but we get a little bit of a look at Bardock fighting uh, Kibu with dreads. I mean, gas. <laughs> and um, hey, you're not wrong. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're not wrong. <laughs> um, Kibu with dreads. <laughs> 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 Um, and we see a little bit of it kind of going back and forth, but we seeing that Bardock is like, yo, nothing I'm doing 
is really having an effect. And we see on the other side that gas is like, I promised elect that I was going to take care of this and I'm going to. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, for the most part, it's pretty much where we end off at. Um, but that's a chapter. I, I'd rather let you give your thoughts on it since I gave a little bit of an explanation and then I'll jump in behind you. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say this. They hit us with that movie style with the title card, right? The title Ooh. card toward the end, that was good. That was good. I, I don't know how involved, because like sometimes I'll look at the translation, it's like story and art by Toyotaro, and sometimes it'll be like story Akira Toriyama, art Toyotaro. But either way, uh, I feel like Toriyama is kind of giving the reins to Toyotaro, and Toyotaro is just doing an amazing job at exploring something that Matt and I have talked about on the air and off the air, sane culture, and really like, excuse me, completing the characters of Goku and Vegeta. Also, sign out. Like, we really do have confirmation that Vegeta and Goku are in their 40s. Um, yeah. But uh, getting into my thoughts, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, shout out Vegeta for saying what we predicted, right? Goku's really just buying time um, for Manaito to heal Granola and just teleporting from planet to planet until he finally gets to the to Weez and the Oracle Fish. Also, real uh, quick, real quick, before you finish that, just to, uh, just to answer what you were saying, um, the Goku, the Bardock versus Gas is written by Toriyama and Toyotaro did the art. Okay, okay. Just but for I, that half. I don't know about for the whole okay. chapter, but for yeah. that half, that's that's how it's credited. Okay, because uh, the way this loop, well, I'll get into my, I'll get into my notes. Uh, things that stood out to me in this chapter. Uh, Goku pulling a Back to the Future move and having Gas get, well, I call them Gas Tannin, <laughs> get gas hit by get hit by a manure truck that's driven by Monaka. Shout out to that cameo was hilarious. Yeah, that um, was funny to me. The chief of the Galactic Patrol gets zero respect. Anytime Goku's involved, that chief is not going to get any respect. Um, Gas really was a weakling back in the day. Like, what did Bardock do to get this dude to go from zero to certified problem, right? Um, or at least what happened between, you know, him wedding himself to... Bardock having some serious problems trying to beat this dude, right? Um, mm. I thought it was surprisingly accommodating on some Power Rangers villain stuff for the heaters to not attack Manito, Vegeta, and Granola while Goku was gone. You know what I mean? It's like, it's morphing time. Really just going to sit back and let them morph? You're not going to? Okay. All right. Whatever. Um, plot armor, I guess. Uh, I guess so. How pissed do you have to be to rage fly from where Weez was back to uh, Planet Serial? Like, homie was pissed. In like, 20 minutes. In space. <laughs> I mean, like, we don't yeah, know. Bro was like, damn, he could breathe in space. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. we're not even sure. Like, he's just like, maybe he's just so angry at, I don't know, stopped him from dying. I don't know, man, but he was pissed off. Um, like you said, we did get confirmation. Like, I, I had surmised the previous chapter a month ago, right? that they all have the ability to unleash their inner natures and it's not just unique to gas. Um, shout out to R2D Oatmeal, right? <laughs> uh, gas is like a headset that can apparently turn into a droid. I still don't know how I feel about that. Like, has it been an AI this, has it been an AI this whole time? Has it been a robot this whole time? Or is it just remote controlled? I don't know, but shout out to Oatmeal. Um, don't be stupid. All right, that's what Alex said to Maki and Oil. You two could never beat that saying. He's referring to them, but is he also considering himself? I feel like he's he's got some cards left in his sleeve. Um, he he's still feel like not, he can fight Loki. Yeah, he, he like to have Gas's 
blind devotion, there's something that has yet to be revealed. Um, deep down, what are you really, is what we says to Goku, who does not know his heritage yet. And this is like, when I read this chapter, I can't help but think of when we last reviewed, and I was like, what if Goku unlocks his memories? You don't know how fulfilling reading this chapter was for me. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it was just like, I don't want, because the way Goku is written and portrayed, it's not like he had a hole in his heart or like there's like a puzzle piece missing in the puzzle that makes him. But me reading, I was like, man, the one thing that's missing from making him complete, complete is him knowing his past, his heritage, where he's from, right? Uh, him unlocking those memories himself, as opposed to like it being Vegeta or Broly or some ancillary character telling him about saying culture. It's like, yo, no, bro, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna remember this. You're gonna remember your childhood. But like you could almost hear that heartbeat, right? You know how they do an anime, that keyword that triggers and you hear like a as their like image kind of fades in and out, right? Like, oh, they we're about to get a memory triggered or somebody's about to go beast mode. But after Bardock says, you two have to stay alive, right? Um, the way that literally looped in to Dragon Ball Super Broly, like literally that was the same scene uh, that we see like Bardock and Gine saying goodbye to their second son before he gets sent to Earth. Like that was what we saw through that, that, that ship's uh, window. It was just, bro, it, I, I, Oh my goodness. Um, this was just, film, man. this was a monumental moment in the chapter for me. Uh, more so than the actual flashback to Bardock fighting gas. Like, I feel like the chapter could have just ended on Goku getting zapped by unlocking his memory and I would have been okay. You know, um, like I said, I was literally wondering last time if he could unlock these memories in this arc and it fucking happened in the best way possible. Yeah. You know, Monaito having Bardock scouter and then Goku hearing his voice like, yeah, like, ah, man, it was just, it was just so good. It was just so good. Like, if you think about it, the only interaction he's actually had with his family up to this point was Radish trying to kill him, which makes like him saying like, man, you know, you know, uh, when he's talking to Gas, I was like, I don't know if you should trust your brother, bro. Mine tried to kill me, you know. Um, that's just me though. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's just me though. But kidnap uh, my son, all yeah, types of stuff. Yeah, you know, uh, I thought it was just beautiful how this chapter tied directly into that retconned origin that was given to us in DBS Broly. Uh, I feel like next chapter, we'll see how Bardock defeated Gas, but more importantly, how this will tie into Goku making Ultra Instinct his own. Um, another thing I thought was important, when they teleport to Whis and the Oracle Fish, right? The Oracle mm -hmm. Fish did not recognize Gas. It did not know who Gas was, right? That might mean that Gas isn't actually the strongest in the universe. Because remember, when this arc started, it started with the Oracle Fish like making some type of prediction, paraphrasing about the strongest person in the universe has just blah, 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 right? And then that really kicks off the arc. Um, back in chapter 80, Maki asked Elec if he wished for Gas to be the strongest in the universe, right? Specifically the strongest in the universe, to which Elec replies, of course I did. Gas is undeniably the strongest fighter now. Now, I don't know if there's, I, I don't know if like there's any significance that I might be tripping, but I would take him responding that way with a grain of salt. I feel mm -hmm. like, cause we still don't know it. The dude's, the dude is shady. We don't know what he actually wished for. Um, interesting note, young gas is wearing neither a headdress 
nor a ceremonial belt. And they yeah. said that back I didn't in that even fight, think that you're right. he unleashed his inner nature. How did he trigger it? Similar to how you can trigger Ozaru with a fake moon. Did somebody trigger it for him? I don't know, but that that's that caught my eye. Um, and then I also thought too, if the scouter contains that, if Bardock scouter contains that audio recording, right? It might be safe to assume that Frieza has that data too. Um, it just made me think of that scene in Dragon Ball Super Broly when Frieza calls for all the Saiyans to report back to planet Vegeta and mm. uh, Broly and his like shipmate, like his shipmate's about to start talking to Broly, uh, not Broly, sorry, Bardock and his shipmate, the shipmate's about to start talking and Bardock like kind of tells him like, hey, we're wearing our scouters, bro. Be quiet, they can hear us. Um, so it's like, I don't know exactly how it works, but if it works anything like the cloud, right? There's a high chance mm -hmm. that Frieza might have that data somewhere and might actually have, might know, right, how to defeat gas. I'm just putting that out there as a throwaway theory. I'm not sure. It just made me think of it, right? Um, That's a good one, though. Side note, Raditz really did get the worst of his parents' looks. Like, he, how, like, like how do you have a, both your parents have full hairlines, full heads of hair, and my, my guy gets a widow's peak with the mullet as Crazy. a child. <laughs> you know what I mean? Crazy. And then, you know, uh, Gine's hairstyle reminds me of a young Gohan. Like, that was literally Gohan's hairstyle. And it it's just, yeah. it's just so cool to see how the grandparents can be seen in the, the second gen. I don't know, man. It, it just warmed my heart a little bit. Um, okay, now getting into my, my theories about this, this uh, Bardock versus Gas battle. I like your theory of Bardock going Ozada. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. it, it holds the most weight right now based on what we have seen in terms of Saiyan capability. Part of me also feels like the heaters would know of that form, right? Uh, why am I saying this? Gas was able to identify that Bardock was a Saiyan based on just seeing his tail. And at that point, it's like you have to consider this is like Frieza Force, Frieza Army in full effect, and plus the Saiyans have been like planet conquerors for a minute. People mm -hmm. probably, word gets around, people probably know that they have the ability to turn into these giant apes, right? Um, so I would imagine Gas would be prepared for something like that, right? So I'm saying, did Bardock unlock a new form that wasn't Super Saiyan? Does he pull a Broly and just absorbs the, Ozor the Osaru power without going full ape? Did he mm -hmm. stumble into Ultra Instinct, right? Either way, it'll be the clue for Goku to unlock his Ultra Instinct, which maybe already happened. Him hearing his father and unlocking those memories is like, wait, I'm a Saiyan. I don't know. Those are my thoughts, dude. I I love this chapter. I love this chapter. When the volume comes out, it already has my money. I loved this chapter. What do you think, bro? Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the chapter as well. Um, I'm more than anything else. I I was really, 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 really invested in the Bardock uh, gas battle more than yeah. I was invested really in anything else. Yeah. Um, it, it the chapters for for their uh, super are typically pretty long anyway, mm -hmm. just because, you know, the nature of it coming out once a month and stuff like that. But dude, always I'm, worth the wait. It's, it's worth the wait. It felt like we got two chapters almost. Yeah. Especially like how they like, position that title card. Yeah. It was just, it felt like we get two completely different things. So, you know, and I, I'm just curious as to what is this, what is Goku's ultra instinct going to look like, especially mm -hmm. considering now we, now that, we can confirm, you know, what we've seen still isn't it. 
mm-hmm. still haven't seen him do it yet. We've seen mm-hmm. him do a version of it, but not a the version version. of it that's mastered for him yeah which kind of also makes me question is that the same for what we saw with ultra ego for vegeta Mm. um you know that's a good call out is that also not the final version of it for him um side note not to cut you off i feel like vegeta is going to struggle just based on how what type of teacher beers is (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah uh, uh, but like him <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. well no i no 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 hey uh vegeta had no problem well did he teach no he didn't really teach uh uh um uh kabe how to go super saiyan but i don't know i feel like vegeta did drop some knowledge on kabe after oh, the battle you know what i mean like beating he's, his ass he's a you decent know. teacher I, you know forget forget him teaching trunks you know like hey you're, you're, uh, yeah he's all right he's no beers <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but I felt like I, I really enjoyed that second half. Um, and I, yeah, it, it, you know, it felt like I was getting like an OVA basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked that there was like that moment that kind of triggered with Goku where it triggered a memory because, oh, man, like you said, and like we've been saying, like, there's a lot of like saying history. So it's so cool that they're touching on that. And they're Bro. really just, you know, it took a minute, but we're finally fleshing out like you know really the history and the past of the sands because mm-hmm. it seems like that kind of has been the direction things have been going on going into a little bit more yep um but overall i i, I love the chapter i was super happy with it one of the one of the better chapters we've gotten like you said it's always been it's always quality after we wait for it you know what i'm saying after we finally get it it's typically really good so and uh, one more thing before we switch over to our next section, but like, mm-hmm. I think Dragon Ball Super is going to be the the end cap to Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z. That's going to make thing. people appreciate Goku as a protagonist. Because what has been one of the arguments of of why Goku is not a good protagonist because he never really changes right? Mm-hmm. He stays the same. He's really more of a foil that the other characters use to grow. But it's like now we're getting to a point where it's like Goku's going to get some character development, dude. Mm-hmm. Like quite literally the biggest way in the sense that he's going to discover his past. He's going to discover where he comes from. He's going to, dude, like in Dragon Ball Super, Goku no, like learns of his, he learned his dad's name like what last chapter or two chapters ago it's like i don't know man i'm just like this is gonna be it this is gonna finally kind of shut down that argument that goku isn't a goat protagonist um that's what i think you know like super is fleshing everything out in the best way i mean it turned me honestly into a vegeta fan uh yeah you know what i mean like just i don't know man I, i i am really 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 loving super uh, that's all I got to say. Yeah, man. Um, with that said, we're going to jump over into whew, our UFC card Bruh. that took place yesterday. Uh, we'll go over the main card for Volkov versus Aspinall that took place over in the UK. Um, Man, before we even get into it, I'm just going to say it was an action-packed card no fight. There was only one fight on the main card that went to the end. Everybody yeah. else got the finish. 
And even in the car, even in the, the situation where the fight did go to the end, it um oof, it was uh it was one sided. Yeah. It was it was a landslide. Um TJ, you wanna start out with our opener? Uh dude, to quote you, no damn near no one was getting paid by the hour of this card. Man, boy, they was not playing. Um, gas pedal. They don't play around in the UK. Uh, overwhelming home team advantage. Listen, first fight we had was Jai Herbert versus Ilya Topuria. Uh, Top- Topuria? Topuria? Oh, no, you went crazy on that. Uh, yeah. Topuria. But we had <laughs> we had lightweight bout. Now, going into this, uh, Jai Herbert, unfortunately, starting out his career, he was already like kind of has taken two L's, right, since debuting in the UFC. Um, unfortunately for him, like he had to fight some names. One of them was Hinato Moicano, who, you know, we saw took a last minute fight against RDA and did rather well. So, you know, Jai had taken an L there and had taken another significant L. I forget who he had fought, but needless needless to say, he has not had the most stellar start to his UFC career. Right. And unfortunately for him, he had to go against Ilya Tapuria, who is becoming quite the name. I think he moved up in weight specifically uh, too, right? And this is the guy mm-hmm. who stopped Ryan Hall, who I want to say up to that point had not really been stopped in the UFC. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ilya's got quite a few names under his belt too. Now, let's get into it. Round one, immediately there's a lot of aggression coming from Tapuria. If you're looking at octagon control he had it now herbert he's putting on some hurt on topuria too but it's like uh topuria ends up getting a takedown right we see a lot of actually good jujitsu from uh herbert in that you know he's able to retain his guard topuria can't really pass it but on the way back up uh we see herbert kind of puts the hurt on topuria right uh Mm -hmm. he almost gets taken down again and on the way up again same thing he puts some damage and you can see that Herbert's trying to find like his jab and his knee. They still, they seem to be connecting. In fact, my, uh, Topuria's mouthpiece flew out twice. That was round one. And also I have to note this too, because we've talked about this a few times, right? With kickboxers, explosive fighters, what's usually the formula? Get them to be on their heels, get them to move backwards a little bit. You can tamp down that explosiveness. But Herbert, one thing he was doing well, side to side movement. So it's like, even though he mm. couldn't really move forward and back, he was moving from side to side, hitting the angles onto Puria. Now that was round one. So you can, you can honestly say, you can maybe give it to everybody, but because Sopudia got those takedowns, you could probably see him getting round one. But it ends up not meaning anything because, of course, when you get a finish, it's infinity points. Now, shout out mm-hmm. uh, Vince. I got that from him. Like, I remember mm-hmm. wrong with Vince. Uh, one, of, one, one of my instructors and one of my friends, like, He'd always say, like, when we were talking about competitions, like, oh, what's sub-? or he'd be like, kind of making fun of me, like, like this submission gets how many points? Like, dude, if or this position gets how many points? Like, dude, if you get a submission, that's like infinity points. But shout out to it's him. all of them, right? Uh, round two, Herbert is doing a good job of managing the distance, and this is where my notes go. Damn, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, Topuria, bro, jab, cross. Left shovel hook, like a hook to the body, mm. comes back up with a right hook, right mm. on the chin. My God. Like, Herbert's, like, I'm doing the SpongeBob hands and hands and prayer in front of my mouth. Herbert's Ooh. eyes were open when he got slept. Mm. That wasn't the only one. 
You are correct, sir. Um, I think he threw like maybe one additional hammer fist out of reflex, but then he immediately backed off. Uh, it was like, you couldn't have asked for a cleaner punch. It's almost like that body hook that shelf hook set it up to, because like you saw Herbert's hands drop slightly and then the right hook came through and just put a bow on it, man. Um, mm-hmm. In his, and leading up to this fight, there was uh, quite a bit of controversy between Ilya and Patty uh, Pimblet, right? Patty the Batty. And mm-hmm. lo and behold, during his Octagon interview with Michael Bisping, he calls out Patty the Batty. He uses a few choice words to describe Patty too. Um, but man, I cannot help but look at that combo again, man. It was like textbook, jab, cross, body, head, dude. It was, man. Uh, but unfortunately for Jai Herbert, this is like his third L and he's starting out his career. So it's like, if we're looking at patterns, this might be it for him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, it's just what it is, right? We can't forget too, like, as much as there are all these other fight promotions out there, the UFC is like, it's like the NBA, right? It's like the top tier, like you get the 1% or 1%. So it's like, you may have been good, at your regional thing or You're whatever. You're the number one like, guy at your gym. And yeah, ever, right? so is everybody else. Exactly. Exactly. The great way to put it. Uh, with that being said, sir, would you like to take us into the next fight, which was? Uh, our next fight was Molly Meatball Makan versus mm-hmm. Luana Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, women's flyweight. Women's flyweight bout. Um, look, man, we started out. Molly came out standing. Bro, on the gas pedal, she didn't step on it. <laughs> That's a visual, actually. She <laughs> stood up on the gas pedal, both feet. You know what I'm saying? She's yeah. holding the holding the steering wheel to really get some leverage and dig that foot to the floor because <laughs> she came at Luana like she had no business being there. And is she almost stopped her in the first round? I'm not yeah. gonna lie to you. Um, oh no, you you are telling the truth, sir. She had a she was had a rock and robin all over the all over the cage. Um, it was interesting because we had um, they were both coming off of a win coming into this fight, mm-hmm. and um, you know on the surface it seemed. And it did kind of divulge down to this, but on the surface, it was like striker versus grappler on mm-hmm. paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looked like a good old fashioned striking match, uh, to be honest. Uh, Listen, I feel like uh, Mark Hunt and Tai Tuivasa and, and Derek Lewis were just looking at this fight, like just happy. <laughs> just salivating. Let the, as, <laughs> right. as, as, Derek, as Derek likes to say, just let them bang. Yeah. And man, that's what they did. Like, you know, this first round, Molly McCann was just, she was all over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually she was able to get a little bit of a takedown. But mm-hmm. what Luana did very well was she was able to really utilize her Muay Thai background yes. and use that clinch to yes. really kind of nullify a lot of attacks and just give her chance, give herself an opportunity to recover. Yes. Now, granted, Molly was still landing strikes and stuff, but I mean, Despite the productivity, I really felt as if she was able to kind of really keep her at bay, yeah, for a really long time. Considering how uh, how the fight went, yeah, uh, going into round two, it was a little bit more of the same. Um, but on the back end of the round, you know, she was able to get a takedown, but Luana was able to just keep her down there, yeah. you know, until until they were able to get them to stand up. And I think the clinch 
her clinch work, you know, being a, a, a multiple-time Muay Thai world champion, mm-hmm. you know, if you're just dealing with any of those people in the clinch, it's tough because clinch work is a big part of that game. Yeah, you are 100% um, correct, sir. Like, and anybody I know that's done Muay Thai for a significant amount of time, big or small, they get a hold of you. They're going to hold on to you. You're going right. to have to peel them off. You yes. know what I'm saying? Especially if you're a grappler, too. It's like they can shut down any of your grip game, like whatever thing you're trying to set up, they can shut it down because their clinch game is no joke either. Yeah, and that, and that was pretty much what she did. Um, and she was able to, I felt as though she was able to survive into the third round. Um, but on the back end of that second round, she was starting to get a little more active and it was mm-hmm. looking a little bit like Molly McCann was starting to get tired. That lactic acid had built up. Yeah. Um, we go into the third round and... It's actually uh, Luana that's taking the lead here. Yeah. Uh, comes out with like a, you know, a little front kick and, you know, she's throwing, she's smiling at us. You know, she's really kind of trying to entice her. And it felt like Luana had finally settled into the bout. Yes, yes. Um, it seemed like those first two rounds, she just was trying to get her feet under her and Molly was ready to go. Yeah, Molly uh, did not give you, her a chance at all to get her feet together. Her an opportunity at all. Um. And things were going a little bit better. Things were actually, I felt, were really going Carolina's way. I thought she was winning the fight. I agree with you. Um, And then Molly, during the clinch, she gets a little bit of separation, and she angled her body off to the side. Now, in the first round, she tries to hit, uh, I want to go back to this, she tries to hit Luana with a spinning back fist in the first round when she Mm -hmm. has her on the cage. Mm -hmm. And Luana, because her grip was so tight, it ended up just catapulting her out of the corner. Right. Um, because she had her arm locked up so tight, the spin just just changed their position. Right. Um, and I would I would just, this is just, you know, just me possibly overanalyzing it. But what we say, saw say was- Say your truth, bro. What we saw was like, I felt like in the third round, they were, you know, they'd been sweating, you know, they weren't dry. The fight had kind of been going on. She was able to pull essentially the same move and at my first glance, I thought she hit her with the most hellacious back fist I had ever seen, like in a, especially like men's, men's fight, women's fight, whatever, because there was a smack noise. It was loud. As if someone had been like punched, like somebody punched a pack of meat. Like I thought like, Rocky was in the locker. Yeah, you know I was going to say it was like on some movie, like sound effect shit. Like it was. Yeah. I damn near thought I was watching wrestling, like with the way that, that the pack sound that was made. And mm-hmm. I mean... I jumped up, my wife jumped up, everybody in that building jumped up uh, from what I saw. Uh, And Luana just went down, eyes open, not rolled Uh, up on her head, unconscious, looking at the ceiling. Yeah. And she she sent her to the shadow round with Yugi's grandfather, real talk, (laughs) like it was insane. And it wasn't until I saw the replay that I realized it was not a back fist it was an elbow yeah. that she hit her with. And you the smack. grandfather? But yes. Hey, you know that's what he was at. You shit. The Now Mind You podcast. We nerds up in here, baby. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and what I realized was the smack came from the fact that her elbow hit her literally on the point of her jaw. Yeah. Like where the jaw connects. So the smack came from the rest of that arm Ooh. making contact with her face. Oh, my God. Oh, that, that oh, is her jaw just like this? Broken? It's she was broken, bro. I have no idea. Like, it was insane. It was, oh, God. It was oh. bad. But, yeah, man, that was, um, 
So ultimately, Molly was able to pull off uh, a third round TKO, pretty much less than two minutes into that, uh, less than two minutes into that second round. And, um, you know, she was at home, so she's the hometown person. Huge explosion from the crowd. You know, everybody was super, super excited. Yeah. Everybody was really happy. Um, she ran out into the crowd. She did a few things I didn't personally care for, just right. based off what her standing is in the division. But right. look, the end of the day, you know, you were in one of the biggest arenas in your country. You were able to fight on the main card in front of your countrymen and things like that. Right. So, you know, congratulations to Molly McCann, man. She went crazy. She definitely won, like, uh, she won what on paper probably should have been a harder fight for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not that, I'm not venturing to say that this was an easy performance, but it was definitely, uh, I would say, you could argue it could have been a star-making performance. For oh, it definitely something that's going to get the attention of other people um, and definitely get, you know, it's going to get the attention of a lot of people. And it was one of the fights on the card, and there were several of them that won, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that got a performance of the night. She won a performance of the night bonus for that victory. Good for her. Um, 100% good for her. That was, I, yeah. You hit the you nail on the head. And, uh, Gunner Nelson versus oh, Ice Cold Gunner Gunny Nelson versus Gunny, baby. Listen, yeah. this was, this we was like, a well, this podcast is a fan of Gunnar Nelson. Listen, uh, man, I we like Gunnar Nelson. So here. you know how I talked about how I had some gaps in my UFC watching, bro. The last time I saw Gunnar Nelson fight was I think he was still uh, training with Connor, and his like first kid had just been born. Wow, yeah, yeah, it's dude. Been a minute. So I was you like, wait, Gunnar Nelson having to do a weight cut? <laughs> I was just like, wait, uh, what? I got a little background on that too. Oh, but please, yeah. you divulge a little before I go into the breakdown. Please. Um, so the whole thing about that was Gunner had taken uh had taken some time off, one, you know, to be a father, uh, right. and two, just to kind of heal some things up within his body. And he actually started a different training regimen where he was starting to do more work with uh with weights and things like that. This was Gunner, yeah. I need you to like you gotta keep shredded. this in mind. Gunner hasn't fought since 2019. Mm. Um and here we are in March of 2022. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he had taken a significant amount of time off, but he was spending time with his family. Um, and he started a new regimen, you know, where he was starting to do a little bit more lifting weights and things like that. Yeah. A new um, a new conditioning program. There we go. And yeah. this was the first time in his career he ever cut weight for a fight. Yeah. Because Gunner is a guy who Walk pretty much walks weight. around about yeah. 170, 175 or so. So, you know, what's five pounds for a guy like that? Right. And um, yeah, man, but that's that's pretty much the only reason he had to take that weight cut. But he hadn't fought uh, he hadn't fought since 2019 after he took a decision loss to uh, Gilbert Burns. He kind of had like a, a rough run of fights uh, where, you know, he fought Ponzinibbio. Then mm-hmm. he fought uh, Alex Oliveira, uh, Cowboy. And then he fought um, Leon Edwards. Mm. He fought Gilbert Burns. Mm-hmm. And after taking, he took two back-to-back off Leon Edwards and Gilbert Burns, and he took some time off after that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that time off did him well. Hey, do you have any background on Takashi Sato that you'd like to give out to? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? I, I'll do that as well. Uh, Takashi Sato is a guy that's had some mixed success in uh, the UFC. He's a, a pancreas guy, believe it or not. Wow. Well, that makes yeah. sense though, coming from Japan. That makes sense. Yeah, actually. yeah, I guess it does. So now that I'm now that I'm saying it out loud, yeah, it does. Um he's had 
about five fights in the UFC. Like, no, like I said, he's been up and down. He won his first two, dropped one to Bilal Muhammad, Mm -hmm. bounced back with a win against Jason Witt in June of 2020. Mm-hmm. And um, this also was a another guy who's had a bit of a layoff. Um, he this was Takashi's first fight since November of 2020, mm-hmm. um, and his time off was mostly just dealing with injuries and then also dealing with visa issues and everything that happened with COVID. With him being a uh, a Japan native, and, right? You know, he trains. In Japan, he doesn't train, you know, he doesn't come to America for his training camps. Everything he does is in Japan. Right. Um, and it wasn't until recently he joined, um, he joined up with uh, Sanford MMA. He's been training under uh, Henry Hooft. Mm. So this was kind of a new situation for him as well. Hmm. Training under Henry see. Hooft, but there was not a lot of striking. Uh, he really didn't let his hands go. Yeah, um, you go ahead and talk about it. I will, yeah. Uh, so this is, so as Matt mentioned, uh, kind of at the top of this section of our combat sports section, right? There was a fight that went the distance, and this was that fight. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I will never not be impressed by how Gunner always stays even-keeled leading up to his fights. My man shows no emotion. Not a smile, not a frown, just... Man, Mr. Stoicism. Real, real talk. Um... Sato immediately puts the pressure right out the gate. And you see Nelson trying to get in range for a clinch. Now, if you don't know this, like Gunnar Nelson is like a high-ranking jiu-jitsu black belt under uh, Henzo Gracie. Like this dude is a grappler. Like probably known for his grappling before even like his MMA. Like that's just... Yeah, they actually like, mentioned that on his... Uh, they mentioned that during the broadcast as well. Right, like like I think McGregor recruited Gunnar into his camp specifically because Gunnar's got that high-level grappling, uh, if I recall back in the day. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so Gunner's usual strategy and philosophy going into a fight is like, how can I get this into a clinch so I can eventually take this down to the ground? And right. the way his stance was set up too, it's like it very much like reminds you of old school karate. And Takashi kind of has a stance that mirrors that too. But it's like Gunner, especially, it's like you think with his hands positioned the way they are, like. It's like, bro, your face is open. But no, nah, he's actually doing a good job getting his hands, like, keeping the distance. Because Takashi Sato was never really able to close the gap in between him, whether it was with, like, strikes or whatever. And, like, I want to say after round one, not many strikes were thrown by Takashi Sato, uh, if any at all. Um, but Gunner, his goal, I'm going to set up a clinch some way, somehow. And Takashi was initially kind of shutting down the clinch attempts because, obviously, he knows how to hand fight, too. Um mm-hmm. But once Gunner uh, kind of figures it out, he does one thing which I thought was brilliant. He used a wrestling penetration shot to kind of get up into the clinch. So he's got the momentum of the shot taking him into this clinch, and he was able to use that to force a hip throw takedown. Like, if you think of, like, a hip toss, just imagine that. But instead of, like, mm-hmm. the traditional, I'm going to grab an arm and a shoulder, he just grabbed around the waist and, like, forced it. Um he then takes the back and gets into what is known as a body triangle. Now, no uh, listeners, Ooh. if you necessarily have a ton of grappling or jujitsu experience, but it's like it's like you're figure fouring your legs across someone's like hips, and yeah. it is and you lock your foot up behind the their thigh. Most uncomfortable way to be put in back control. It's not fun because those legs are squeezing 
either your hips or your ribs, depending on like how high or low they are on your back. But it's very hard to escape. And then Gunner takes it up a notch. He's fishing for a rear naked choke, but how he's fishing for that rear naked choke is what's like just <laughs> almost cruel, <laughs> almost yeah. cruel. But I mean, this is a this is a sport of violence. Is what it is. He's not using the padded part of his glove to hit Takashi Sato. He's using his knuckles, but the exposed knuckles to, I don't want to say punch, but like wrap his fist knocking on him. against this dude's skull. And why is he doing that? To get the neck and the chin exposed. Um, mm-hmm. To Takashi's credit, though, he ends up, you know, I wouldn't say getting saved by the belt, but he ends up defending off the uh, RNC at times where it's like, he's just taking hits to hit directly to his head and by extension, his brain. So it's like, I don't know how good I feel about his overall strategy, um, but he didn't get choked out. And honestly, this pattern just ends up becoming the story for the whole match. It's just Gunner uh, forcing the clinch, getting a takedown, getting to the back, getting to the body triangle, same thing. He was just trying to get that finish. And yeah, smash. Yeah, exactly. And like it, that was the story for round three as well. Yes, and brother. Round three, it was even, it was like Gunner was just like kind of over at this point. He just straight up went for like a takedown to back control. It was like the smoothest way he got to the back yet into that body triangle. But mm-hmm. same thing, it just ended up being, all right, I'm going to just hit you, hit you, hit you, get that chin exposed and try to get this rear naked choke. But unfortunately, he was unable to get the finish. But as you can all surmise, he got that unanimous decision. There was never a point in this fight where Gunner was not in control. Like That's just facts. Um, yeah. You have any thoughts you want to share on that, man? Um, yeah, you know, it's just like, <laughs> like you see guys get smashed as they like to say, you know, they just get held down and pummeled. I've just never seen a guy get smashed on his back. Having yeah, person that was so un- unprecedented. It was just like, yo, you are just getting pummeled and you cannot do anything about it. And he really could not. And you know, you know what? Um, go, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. No, please. yeah. I was just saying he just really couldn't do anything about it. And it was just like the third round, he did the same thing. He was just more aggressive about it. And yeah. he was really trying to get the choke. Gunner even gave gave him a compliment saying like he was really surprised at how good his neck defense was. Yeah. He was just like, man, I really was going for that. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And it wasn't like he wasn't trying. The guy just had some had the resolve. And one other thing I'll say about him, um, him not letting his hands go, and they, you know, they mentioned this on the broadcast as well. I mean, it was the fear of the takedown. Right. You know, um, Gunner isn't necessarily known to have the best takedown game. Like he's not necessarily known as being the best at taking people down. Mm-hmm. But we know that if he gets you on the ground, it's like, over. You you guys are down there now. Yeah. You know, you're in you're his not ocean. On the, he he's not on the ground too. You're on the ground with him. Yeah. You know, he he'll have you swimming in the canvas pretty soon. So yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I didn't have any thoughts really. You, I think you covered it pretty well. That Thank it's you. the only one that was a, a decision on the card, and it wasn't. You know, it was uh thirty twenty six across the board. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The and one gonna, thing gonna the went one in there and did what he had to do, bro. The one thing I want to add to is like, <clears throat> Gunner may have solved an interesting problem for like striking from unorthodox positions, especially with grappling, because you'd think it's like your your legs are out of the equation your legs are literally wrapped around another person's body so how can you really generate any power now i'm not saying that the strikes gunner through for one i was not on the receiving end of them so i don't know how mm-hmm. powerful they were but you have to admit him being able to 
have the time and space to wind his arm up before each one of those throws had to make those strikes a little devastating. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, that was a very unorthodox way of striking, but I'm like, it makes sense if you're going to be striking from that position. I thought that was really cool. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, bro. Now, like we said, this was the only one that went to decision. The next three, Matt, just take us into the next one, bro. We Please. had Patty the Batty. <laughs> it's such a wild name. <laughs> but it works, man. But it does work. Rolls man. off the tongue. We had Patty the Batty uh, fighting against Kazula Vargas, um, which Kazula Vargas is a guy who's coming to the UFC. He's been there since 2019. He's kind of been up and down in his career. Um, an unranked guy uh, who has fought, you know, as high as welterweight before. And um, last night he came face-to-face uh, -face with Patty Pimblett in, in Patty's second UFC bout. Um, Patty Pimblett has very recently signed to the UFC um, and just had his very first fight back in September mm -hmm. uh, for the UFC. And he's now having on almost a year, it's been almost a year since he's left Cage Warriors, uh, almost a year to the day, in fact, since his mm -hmm. final Cage Warriors fight. He had... Uh, he was able to fight at home, and he got a chance to fight Rodrigo Vargas. Now, obviously, a lot of the media... Or Kazula Vargas. Kazula Vargas, I'm sorry. Well, Kazula is his nickname. Rodrigo is his first name. Oh, I did not know that. My bad. It's like a Korean zombie thing. Like, he, we know his name is Chan Son Jung, but, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, mm -hmm. But Kazula is his nickname. And um, pretty much, he was... You know, th this fight was billed for Patty Pimblett to be the guy to uh to win the fight but it was i almost felt bad for kazula um because in the build-up to this fight it was more about <laughs> an issue that took place before the weigh-ins between uh patty and Ilya tapuria um where they kind of came to blows a little bit in uh in the hallway of the fighter hotel so to a degree I'm, and i could have been a minority here i that's who i thought he was fighting I didn't know he was fighting Rodrigo Vargas. I thought he was fighting Ilya Tapuria, to Same. be honest. Same. So when I saw him fight Jay Herbert, I was like, oh, so then who's Patty Pimblett fighting? <laughs> you know, not in that. I don't mean that in any, uh, I don't mean that disrespectfully towards Rodrigo. I just, I didn't know. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of buildup and they showed a little bit of uh, the pre where Patty was just saying he didn't believe Rodrigo would even land a punch. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, Rodrigo lands a beautiful right hand on him early in the round mm -hmm. and doesn't drop him, but he definitely forces a takedown right away. And they get to working on the ground. And, um, you know, for anybody who's familiar with Patty Pimblett, this guy is a cage, uh, not a cage warriors guy. Well, he is a cage warriors guy, but that's not the point I'm making. Mm -hmm. This guy is known for his ground game. Mm -hmm. That's not where you want to fight Patty Pimblett. He, and this is a guy who has knockouts and things like that on his record. He has a, you know, his record covers, he can, he's going to stop you in whatever way he has to. Um, but he was able to kind of get, do some good work down on the ground and he pulled off the rear naked choke, man. He, he was able to get, get underneath Rodrigo's arms. He had a situation kind of similar to Gunner, but he didn't get the full uh, seatbelt on him. He just right. kind of was able to get his back. After he got him down, instead he got his back to the cage instead of allowing Rodrigo to get his own back to the cage to stand up. 
And, and just um, to uh, supplement wait. that too, the way Patty got to his back was not an easy way to get there, by the way. Like the cage, if anything, was hampering his ability to get to uh, Kazula's back, but he, he did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he was able to get on this guy's back, man. And it looked like it was going to possibly be a neck crank. And then he was able to kind of lay him down on the ground. And eventually, after a decent amount of hand fighting and, a you know, realistically, a little bit of glove grabbing, um, he was able to get his hand underneath the chin, crank that back, and he was able to choke him out uh, for a rear naked choke, which would be another first round finished. And he finished him uh, just under four minutes into that first round. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, two fights for Patty in the UFC, two first round finishes, uh, first one being a TKO, second one being a a submission with uh, a rear naked choke, which again, just the, I know these are stupid, like fight nerd things, but I just got to point out his first two fights as a pro were uh, TKO via strikes and a choke submission as his second one, both in the first round, mm. though his, his second, you know, victory was a flying triangle. It wasn't a, um, it wasn't a rear naked choke, but you know, this is a guy that's either going He's either going to sub you or he's going to knock you out. And he has a pretty decent amount of both of those. He has very few decisions on his record. Mm -hmm. Very few decisions on his record. Um, did you did you have any thoughts on the fight? It wasn't a long fight, so. <laughs> I, got, I got no thoughts. Um, I have, you covered it pretty well. You want to oh, take us into Arnold Allen versus Dan Hooker? <sighs> Arnold Allen... Versus Dan Hooker. Do, do we need to take a moment? Do we should we take a second before <laughs> we just to just unpack this first round fight? I, I, I'm just like, listen. I guess Molly McCann kind of lit a fire under. I, I would say Gunner is probably considered like an honorary member of the UK, like adjacent, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. They love him out there. But like all the other UK fighters, except for like Jai, um, just had a fire lit under them. And this fight was no different. Arnold Allen versus Dan Hooker at Featherweight. Um, let, let, listen, I'm just going to read my notes. Um, the fight starts round one. Hooker's already coming in with the pressure and controlling the center. Um, interesting side to side movement once again. And calf kicks coming off of Allen. And then Allen lets those hands go. And when I say let's those hands go, um giving the bitches away like they was for charity, boy. I'm <laughs> 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 just saying he's letting them hands go, boy. There's was a liquidation sale on hands. Bro, where do you come up with <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, essentially yes? Uh they both kind of wobble each other at some point within the first round, but it's like, listen, uh, they they dole each other. It's like, you got to respect my hands, but one of them definitely had uh, the stronger hands, if you will. Uh, they literally take a breather at some, speaking of taking a breather, right, Matt? They literally took Ooh. a breather mid-round and they get back at it. But this time you just see a sequence that goes a little something like this. Jab cross thrown by Allen mm -hmm. wobbles and sends Hooker across the octagon, and he just keeps going, lets his hands go. 
to a TKO by Allen, man. And it's like what ended up causing the referee to jump in between him. Allen gets Hooker to the cage and throws a series of sandwich elbows. I feel like we've been seeing these sandwich elbows coming up in like the past few events, man. Um, mm-hmm. This was just nasty. Like same thing, sandwich, elbow, 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 elbow. And the referee is just like, this is over. Uh, and at some point, so like in my notes, and I, I corrected myself even in the notes too, like when I thought that they had wobbled each other, no, Allen didn't get wobbled. He swung so hard, he lost his balance. <laughs> That's yeah, what man. happened. Uh, and then in his in his uh, in his octagon interview, he calls out Calvin Cater. Um, that's gonna be a fight, but if it happens, right? That's not. It's at the end of the day, it's not necessarily up to the fighter. That's a wild title, fight, man. But that's gonna be wild. Um, uh, Matt, do you have anything you want to add in terms of like the 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 context going into this fight, especially for Hooker, because it looks like. Yeah, um, right. I think this could quite possibly be Dan Hooker's last fight in the UFC. Um, I don't think this is going to be his last fight, period. Um, Just looking at it overall, you know, looking at his most recent fights, he's been a lot, been just barely not 50-50, you know what I'm saying? And not in a good way. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he's, this is his second loss in a row. He lost, uh, got a submission loss to Islam Makachev. And this was a fight where he dropped down back to uh, featherweight where, you know, he hasn't been at featherweight in a long time. Um, the last time Dan Hooker was fighting featherweight, they still had sponsors. Damn. You know what I'm saying? Well, they and they were still on the Reebok sponsorship, I want to say, in his last featherweight bout. Damn. Um, yeah, man. Like, it's this goes back, 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 back. Like, he hasn't been at featherweight for a long time. Um I would say he hasn't been at featherweight till about since about like 2015, maybe even 2016. Wow. Yeah, it's been a while, man. Um, and he was just kind of dropping down after having, you know, not a lot of success at lightweight. And lightweight is one of the most competitive divisions. And to be honest with you, so is featherweight. So, you know, it was coming off that first round submission loss to Islam Makachev back in October. And then He's TKO'd here in a different weight class. You know, he was TKO'd by Michael Chandler. And, you know, he lost that that war he had with Dustin Poirier back in 2020. Shit, I might rewatch that tonight, honestly. Um, hmm. it's, just, it's, just, it's just a good fight, man. Um, but, you know, it's, it's two in a row. And, you know, he's won one out of his last five. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, you never know. He might still get another shot. Who knows, man, but. That you know, that's pretty much my thoughts on on the Dan Hooker Arnold Allen fight. All right, now you got to take us into your boy versus. Oh Volga. my gosh, sir! The main event, O2 Arena, London, England. <clears throat> we had Todd at Tom Aspinall versus Alexander Volkov in the main event. Um, Tom Aspinall is uh, part of Team Kaboom, which is also a team. Um, that Darren Till is a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I want to just point something out that's a pretty interesting thing, and they didn't really touch on this. Um, they don't actually ever really talk about this at all, but um, Tom Aspinall is the son of the head coach at Team Kaboom. Mm-hmm. So this is a kid who's been around, had a lot of experience, um, just as far as combat sports and being around combat sports and things of that nature. And he was going against 
uh, Alexander Volkov, who is a UFC veteran, you know, 33 years old, just a little bit older than Tom Aspinall. But this is a guy who has fought in Bellator before, you know, uh, he's fought in M1, came over to UFC, you know, mm-hmm. pretty respected kickboxer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and dangerous, you know, can't, this guy is, you know, six foot seven. And man, but those legs, man, he was whipping those legs around like they weighed nothing. Yeah, I mean, that's, kicks like that's that kickboxing punches. experience, yeah. man. Yeah, that's the experience. That's what it comes from. Um, you know, and Tom Aspinall came in there, and this was another first-round stoppage. Mm. Um, Tom Aspinall has been on a run. Young guy, 28 years old, you know, and, boy, he's gotten into the UFC, and he has not lost since he got here. Mm. Uh, he took out Jay Coulter, TKO in the first round. Uh, he took out Alan Badeau, TKO in the first round, submitted Andre Arlovsky in the second. And then he very recently fought Sergey Spivak back in September, stopped mm-hmm. him in the first round as well. Um, of those, and then last night, he was able to defeat Alexander Volkov. So what we got was early on, it seemed like Tom found the range on Volkov, mm-hmm. which is in something. and of itself is in a, saying something considering how tall this man is yeah. and to be able to pull that off early. Yeah. Like, I mean, with no trouble. It was like it was like he had fought him before. He knew where he was. And not only was he able to find his range as the shorter fighter with the shorter reach, he was pulling out and making him miss. Yeah. Which oh my really kind of shows you what his his head movement, his skill level um, his distance control, his speed of hand and foot, both were it, pretty much everything was on display. For me personally, I felt like, and this is a little bit of bias, but also at the same time, not really a little bit of bias. I felt like this was a star making performance for Tom Aspinall. I'm not his mad at that. head movement set up what a double was the finish, yeah. where he slipped his head off to, to the left side and then just blasted a, a, a double leg takedown that. Led to a. Um, it was beautiful. Was a straight. How how would what was the what was the submission again, TJ? I would straight call it a, a figure four armbar. So it's yeah, like they, the arm was straight and the, the uh, Aspinall's arms were in like a figure four position. It was yeah. it was textbook. Honestly, that's like something you'd see in like old school shooto early MMA uh, mm-hmm. type submission. It was good and yeah, it man, still he, works. He was able to shoot in there, blast that. Uh, he was able to shoot in there, blast that double, get side control, work for that arm, and mm-hmm. he got him out of there in that first round. And he was also getting the better of the stand up exchanges. I mean, he which was is really like, making this guy miss. He had the height disadvantage. And to be fair, too, um, Volkov didn't look that much bigger than Aspinall. I, I remember like thinking to myself, I was like, they don't look that much well, different. Well, no, in they height. weren't the they weren't different. There wasn't a, a huge difference. It was like in two weight. inches or so. It's only two inches. Yeah. Tom Aspinall's six five. And yeah. uh, you know, Volkov is six seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an interesting thing because Tom Aspinall was a kid that had a he got a growth spurt late. So he was always really, really um he was always the smaller of you know all the people that were around him. Right. And that's I guess that mentality he was able to keep with him where he would just maintain that speed. Yeah. But you also got to oh, think. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, the, the he's sparring with welterweights and stuff like that. So, yeah. you you know, whenever whenever you got guys like that, you know, and you, you see you see you kind of see those things transition 
where, and this is just a little bit of like martial arts philosophy period, right? Um, where you kind of see that where guys who work with people that aren't of the same weight, and you see this kind of on offense and defensively, depending on, you know, who the person is, you see a lot of those advantages, you know, because Tom Aspinall spars with smaller guys, he has the style of a smaller guy. Right. Because that's really the only way to be effective. And you right. also see like on the adverse of this, like uh, a guy like Dominic Cruz, right. That created like this extremely unique, but very defensive style. Mm -hmm. You know, he's been quoted by saying the way that he came up with it was he was the guy that had to spar all the bigger people. He was the smallest guy in his gym. Right. And there's nobody else to spar, you know, especially because during his era, his weight class was was only in one place. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So there mm -hmm. wasn't a wealth of guys around. And I mean, you just kind of see those things everywhere. And sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. But in this instance, it was a fantastic thing. I mean, uh, if you're from if any of our listeners are familiar with kickboxing, Rico Verhoeven is a perfect example of that. This guy's, mm -hmm. you know a heavyweight, arguably the greatest heavyweight kickboxer of his generation, if not ever. And when asked about his style, he spars with a lot of small guys. Mm -hmm. He's the biggest guy in his gym. And he was like, you know, when he first was coming up, imagine being uh, a 200, you know, 200 plus pound guy, 220, 230, and your sparring partners are 145. Right. You know you what I'm saying? You can't just break them. Like You, you gotta, can't just break them, yeah. but you also got to use some skill because if these guys are, are talented, you're just going to be sitting there hitting the air. So, yeah. yeah. You know, and I think that's a little bit of what we saw with Tom Aspinall. Um, and this and, is definitely something that's going to move him up the rankings within the UFC. Almost and definitely, yeah. He's getting a title shot soon. And I was going to say, well, he's got he's to go against Taito Ibasa, who he called out, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was I also going to, to see that fight. To mention that's the that. only fight I want. This also supplements an argument that, uh, not an argument, but a point that you've made and that I agree with. It's like Tom Aspinall is literally that new generation of fighters mm -hmm. who has grown up seeing everything and who has been training everything. It's not, he's not a specialist. Like he's literally good at every single aspect of the game. He's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. He's that new gen. And his dad, fun fact too, right? His dad was like one of the first black belts in jiu-jitsu uh, in the UK. You know, yeah. so it's like getting to learn from a coach like that, dude. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. And being exposed to all aspects of the art, like he's literally, sorry, uh, shout out Gundam, the new type. <laughs> yeah, you no, know? for real. He is the new type. You know, this is Tom Aspinall, rank number 11, jumping up and fighting Volkov number six. Right. You know, and he's asking for Tai Tuivasa. Tai Tuivasa was asking for Stipe. I mean, I think it's the heavyweight division is as interesting as it's ever been. Right. It's now. like you said, changing of the guard, low key. Changing of the guard, man. Yeah. When you're looking at it, because look at it like this. the If you look at the top five, because obviously, if, even if Tom Aspinall doesn't break into the top five, and this mm -hmm. is our, like, this was our last fight on this card in the last part of combat sports section, so we mm -hmm. can just kind of talk this out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, Tom Aspinall, if he jumps, if, if nothing else, we can say he'll probably, he can even hit number five, right? right? Just depending on how they do it. Because currently, Derek Lewis is five, Volkov is six. Derek Lewis has beat, has knocked out Volkov before. He just beat Volkov, so that would probably put him ahead because Derek Lewis just came off a loss as well. Right. Um, but going back to the new generation thing, if Tom Aspinall, just for example, let's say he takes number five, the top five underneath Francis is Surreal Gone, Stipe Miocic, Ty Tuivasa, Curtis Blades, and if he gets that five spot, Tom Aspinall. Mm. All next generation guys, really the only 
the only two people that aren't necessarily that are Curtis Blades and um and Surreal Gone, to mm-hmm. be honest. Because mm-hmm. Curtis Blades is like, you know, shout out to Chicago, Chicago guy, mm-hmm. uh, D LaSalle guy, shout out to our boy mm-hmm. Bryce, he graduated with him. Uh, you know, Curtis Blades is a specialist who's learning other things. And I feel like the same thing kind of can be said about Surreal Gone. They're almost specialists in the opposite way. You know what I'm right, saying? Right, right, right. Um, and I know that Ty Tuivasa was asking for or suggesting the Stipe fight, but I would honestly say, and this is just me, if I could match make the winner of Ty Tuivasa, I would give the winner of Ty Tuivasa and Tom Aspinall Stipe if John Jones hasn't finally reared his head at heavyweight. Uh, no comment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing you I'm can really say it, really too. But if, right. if that's the case, just because, you know, they were talking about Stipe would probably be John's introduction into the heavyweight division. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the only way that you get Stipe off the table because Ty Tuivasa versus Stipe, I think is an interesting fight. But if Ty Tuivasa can get past a guy like Aspinall, I think Stipe needs to start looking at some tape of Ty if he isn't already. Right. And if you in the heavyweight division and you're not looking at Tom Aspinall, man, you better start looking at him now. Right, right. Because... You know, the the fight I would love to see Tom Aspinall have a heavyweight is Surreal Gone because mm-hmm. I feel like their styles are very similar. They're mm-hmm. both very fast, very dexterous, stand switching, very light on their feet, but heavy, yeah. you know, at the same time. So I'd be very curious to see that. How did you feel, uh, TJ? Did you have any thoughts or anything you want to add? Sir, that yeah. was just... yeah. Like, homie had no flaws in this game, wasn't worried. Even there was a point where Aspinall literally slipped and lost his balance. And his head movement and awareness is so good that he got up and out of the way because it looked like Volkov was going to kick him when he was down. And Aspinall got off, smiled. You know, they dapped a little bit. It's like, all right, that was pretty slick, you know, and they got back to it. But it's like, this dude is just, this is my first time watching him. And Mike, uh, no, Mike. Matt is why I call you Mike. But Matt, you've been hyping him up to me. And I was like, I was like low-key kind of excited to watch this. I was like, yo, I'm about and, to see and you saw what he's why. all about. Yeah. I'm like, this dude, what that was an impressive performance. Like, he is another one, kind of like the gunny style, where no expressions, stoic, super not, stoic. There's another guy, stoic, not worried. Calm, heart rate is on point, just chill, you know. And I see why, man. Uh, homie was good everywhere. Everywhere. Like, he he opened up Volkov uh, when he was, like, when he got Volkov on his back, right? And during the first, uh, that was still, I'm like, I feel like there was multiple rounds. That was still just the first round. Uh, mm-hmm. There were multiple takedowns. It's like, he opened up Volkov in the first one and then finishes. Bro, I got, you, you, you covered it all already. I was just like, damn, that was impressive. Saga. Yeah, man, I was I was super impressed by it, honestly. Um, and with that said, that's gonna conclude our combat sports section. Let's get and into the question of the week, topic of the week, and our topic of the week this week is what villain we thought deserved better. TJ, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and speak for both of us and say, obviously, Griffith deserved better. Oh right. my God! Get <laughs> I'm, kidding. Go. I'm kidding! 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 Internet, hold on, wait! <laughs> I'm kidding. Get this man out of here! Bro. Uh, 
Man, it was actually really hard for me to come up with an answer to this one. Like the only thing that popped up in my head, uh, and this is kind of delving a little bit out of the realm, well, not a little bit, a lot of bit out of the realm of anime manga, but going into uh, movies and comics, I thought Killmonger, uh, but in Judaka, Killmonger, specifically within the context of 2018's Black Panther, specifically against specific you guys can't see the box i'm making with my hands specifically mm-hmm. within that context because i know that dude is a problem uh mm-hmm. bro if you if you've read like the intergalactic empire of wakanda he takes it to a whole nother specifically within 2018's black panther um the reason why i say this is because like uh the lack of communication between Njobu and uh king t'chaka right uh and jobu actually kind of being a little bit more noble in spirit, even though he was more of like, you know, a spy sent to watch over, you know, California, so on and so forth, kind of like observe, report back to Wakanda. Like mm-hmm. he, he got a heart, right? He got a heart, low-key kind of bleeding heart, which, you know, uh, old school Wakandans are not a fan of. Everything Wakandans do is honestly to serve and protect Wakanda, the interests of Wakanda, and to make sure that Wakanda can never be conquered, right? Uh, to make sure Wakanda's resources and Wakandans are always protected. So... Um, yeah, and Jobu's out there on his, like, recon mission, like, you know, being a spy or whatever, and he falls in love with, uh, an American Black woman, uh, Loki becomes, like, somewhat of an activist, and I guess kind of on the criminal side, too, because, like, when, uh, the Dora Milaje and King T'Chaka bust up on him, they got plants, and, you know, unbeknownst to him, the dude he's collaborating with is Zuti, right? They got, they got plans to, like, kind of, you know, schedule some type of heist, um, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, King T'Chaka basically kind of dispatches Njobu, kills his own brother, and as a result, he didn't know about little Eric at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he inadvertently orphans the kid. Now, it's also said too that I mean, we also discover later on in the movie that uh, when uh, T'Challa speaking to T'Chaka on the astral plane, right? Speaking to all the ancestors he has direct access to, all the former kings and queens of Wakanda he has access to, just being uh, the new king. His dad knew about Eric's existence the whole time, Um, but they didn't do anything because they chose to preserve the lie and Mm -hmm. somehow safeguard Wakanda then potentially, you know, have this kid know that he has a family, you know? Uh, but also, unfortunately for them, is that Eric knew about Wakanda because Njobu would always tell him stories about it when he was a kid. But mm-hmm. that being said, the lack of communication of and uh, the lack of therapy and or therapy from uh, Njobu and T'Chaka kind of led to the creation of the monster that Killmonger became. Um, yeah. And to be fair, too, it's like his cause was just when you think about it, but the ends which he used to justify the means was just wrong. Um, hell, I mean, if you think about it, Nakia was low-key aiming for the same thing. It's like, yo, we got all these resources. We have this, this technology, this wealth. We don't have to just keep this to Wakanda. We could help change the continent of Africa. We could help change the plight of, you know, African descendants all across the world, right? Mm-hmm. And she was going about it in a far less destructive and probably more effective manner. Um, but I mean, there's just... There's just so much in terms of Killmonger they could have tapped into if they had just taken it a slightly different route. I don't know that rehabilitation would have worked the way his character was made, but it's like, ah, 
Yeah, I feel like they could have done better. And they did explore like what he would have been like in a different multiverse. It was a whole Marvel what if episode. Well, one, that kind of explores a different timeline for him. And two, where it all comes together toward the season finale. Uh, If you haven't watched what if, I'll be kind this time. I'm not going to spoil that for you, but come on. Um, (laughs) But um, I'll let it rock too. Yeah, you know what I mean? This time. Yeah, (laughs) that was a threat. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, even in that timeline, he was still kind of a problem. But it's like, Villains that deserve better because he was a villain specifically, again, in the context of the movie where he was built to be like, okay, I can kind of empathize with his cause, right? I can kind of relate to what he, well, not necessarily relate, but I can understand what he's going through and why he's doing what he's doing. And for that, I think they could have given him a better ending or at least changed it a little bit so they could reuse him. And it sounds like, you know, based on the rumor mill or articles that get posted on the various, you know, media outlets, that Killmonger's character is coming back. I don't know how, but remember that these movies are based on comic books and in comic books, death isn't really a permanent thing. Death isn't real. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, that was my villain who I thought deserved better. What did you think, Matt? Who is your villain? You know what, man? The first one, that I just went with my first mind. I didn't, you know, I didn't try to think into it and I'll probably look back on this and be like, damn, I could have said this person, that person. But the first <laughs> villain that came to my mind was Madara. Ooh, Uh, Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. And I felt like he deserved better. And I think we both kind of took a different approach on this. So I like that. Um, I felt like he deserved better because we had, to me, quite literally like years of buildup to this man's return. That's fair. That is fair. We have a whole, this, we have years of buildup to this man's return only to realize that like, to get this army that everybody was putting together was damn near for one guy. It was damn near for just his ass. Right. And it was not enough. We go through wave after wave after version after version after, you know what I'm saying? I mean, right. this moderate ass might as well have been Frieza. You know, the first time they dealt with him, it was just like, oh, you got me? Like, you fighting undead moderate. Then you're fighting uh, resurrected Madara, who finds a way to resurrect itself. Then he steals Kakashi's eye. Then he's six paths Madara and all mm-hmm. of that. And then you kill him off for Kaguya at the end. Yeah. A, a, a villain with that seemed damn near just pigeonholed in to the whole situation. There were no little things dropped about her previously. She was never really super enwrapped in the story, but they just kind of, uh, you know, they just kind of plot armor her into the story, basically. It's like, oh, she's always been this, this, that, and the third. And, you know, obviously the the Otsuki, you know, bloodline and all of that, that all plays a much bigger role in Boruto. Right, 100%. it felt like such a betrayal of everything that had been built up and everything up that, that had been worked for right. to like just up and switch it. And then for them to been able to deal with her in less time than it took them to deal with Madara. And there right. was like, every nation came together because of this. And granted, she's one person and Madara, there was an army behind Madara as well. Mm-hmm. But you and I both know it wasn't like a full on army versus army situation that they were no. dealing with. No, um, I just didn't like that, man. I thought it was I it was pretty much the one of the turning points 
for uh for that series and it, it's had a lot of ups and downs but it's to me one of the hang-ups i have on it on that back end yeah um you know just the whole like it was like they tried to they tried to give her like the Eisen treatment, like oh well, you know I made Zetsu she was there the and, whole time, yeah, yeah. But it just didn't make sense because at least when we saw it done somewhere else, you know, and I, I have to go with that example of Bleach, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. when we saw it done somewhere else, it was done better. You guys need to understand, like mentioning Bleach hurts Matt's heart. <laughs> it hurts me. It hurts my soul. But he's right, you know. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, man, that's just how I feel about that. Like, I felt like Madara was the was the the villain that I just felt deserved better because, like, even he's even taken out in an unceremonious way. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like, it's yeah. just like, and now he's gone. And he's no longer a threat. Like, what? Right. This is a dude who gave people. This is a dude who forced uh, Mike Guy to unlock all the gates. <laughs> like, 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 I, dude. Yeah, no, yeah, I feel you. I feel you. I feel you. He killed Naruto. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. killed the main character. Right. Like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, man. It, I just wasn't happy with it, man. I, I really that that was just the first one that came to mind when I thought like a villain that deserved better. That was where my head went. Oh no, one hundred percent. I can see that too. Um, but I will say, next week's topic. What character could have, should have been a villain? I feel like we should be able to to maybe have multiples on this. I feel like I might have one in an honorary mention. How about let's you? Just get, let's just bring two of them. Yeah. Let's bring two of them to yeah. the table. Yeah. Uh, that, I feel like we both have one in common already that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I got an idea. <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh, with that being said, um, Matt, man, just wrap us up, bro. Yeah, this is going to conclude episode 11. 11. Double digits. Double digits, baby, of the Now Mind You podcast. Thank you guys so much for checking us out. Thank you Mm -hmm. guys so much for rocking with us on whatever uh, your preferred podcast platform is. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're checking us out on Spotify, thank you. You're checking us up on Apple Podcasts, thank you. You're checking us out on SoundCloud, thank you. You're checking us out on Anchor. Thank you. If thank you're you. listening to a, a clip of us on Instagram, thank, thank you. Thank you. Twitter, Reddit, however you check us out, we appreciate it. 100%. Uh, all support is support, period, and we do appreciate that. 100%. Friend, family, whatever. Foe. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank right, you. Foe, especially. <laughs> um, uh, you want to check us out after this, you can follow us on the out at Now Mind You Pod. Mm-hmm. You can follow me at Matt Hambrick on pretty much with any social media, M-A-T-T-H-A-M-B-R-I-C. TJ, where can they find you? Instagram at Tuss4 underscore skate. Uh, T-U-S-S number four underscore S-K-A-T-E. Also, don't forget to check us out on YouTube. We have mm-hmm. our review for the Batman Up as well as where yep. TJ is going to be placing his reviews for Tokyo Revengers. And uh, we will be doing a review of the Jujutsu Kaisen Zero stay film tuned. that we both got a chance to see, uh, to see. So stay tuned for that. Be on the lookout for that. Uh, and be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on YouTube. And We're growing. Give us a thumbs up wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps us grow. It really helps, you know, the podcast. And if you guys have any feedback, anything like that, throw it in those comments. Appreciate you guys. Have a good one. Any other words of wisdom you want to leave us with, Matt, before we uh we peace out? 
you already know Ayama is still a bitch. Never. All right, everybody, peace out.